Hello and welcome to the Bond Revisited podcast with me, Tom. And me, Joe. The podcast where we rewatch the Bond films one by one, discuss them, and then rank them alongside the other Bond films to build our own definitive list for the Bond franchise. You are listening to episode two, where we'll be revisiting the film from Russia with Love. The thing that's really nice about this podcast and doing this rewatch is that the Bond franchise starts so strong. Like, we get to watch some pretty good films right off the bat. It doesn't start that naff, as we found out last week. And I think I can say going into this one, we were probably both excited uh, to check this one out again. Oh, yes. Well, it was number four on my list of top five Bond films. I think it was four. I've already I want to say five, because I think you said you weren't a big Sean Connery fan. I think you said you hated Sean Connery, something like that. I can't well, remember. he said something to me that was very mean one time, and I, I hold grudges. No, I think you're right, actually. I think it was five. Uh, yeah. So I knew it was going to be good. I think we, we both probably knew it was going to be good. It's up there. Um, but I will say, having watched it now for the first time in probably about five years... There are some things I did have issues with. It wasn't quite as amazing as I thought it was going to be. Okay, well, we'll get into that. Uh, but yeah, like you say, I think I had good memories of Dr. No, and it was nice that living up to that. And I knew in my head that I liked From Russia With Love more than uh, Dr. No. So after coming away from that and being like, yeah, Dr. No was a good time, I was like, this is definitely be a good time. I'm actually really looking forward to this got to sit down put the disc in again i was like yes i am so ready for more james bond did you have a good time i did i did have a good time good i think it's quite surprising how watching dr no from russia with love quite close it was actually quite surprising how linked those films are and how similar they are because we talked about the technical problems last time at dr no so we'll get into it this time but it, it's it's very interesting to see them being that sequel which makes sense because they only came out a year apart so obviously it wasn't going to completely flip everything on its head uh, but i was quite surprised about the the strong connections between the two both in terms of how it was made uh, and the content itself you know i was going to bring that point up later on because i totally agree there was things in this film that i if i had not seen dr no only a few days beforehand uh i probably wouldn't have made the connections but and it's kind of the you know the beauty of doing this podcast where we are seeing them um, one after one and being able to make these connections between the film because yeah some very very cool little i don't know if they were sort of i don't know how um uh kind of specific they were with with trying to make little callbacks to the first film maybe it was just because as you say like they're just sort of so close together it just happened naturally but um yeah i guess uh well, i'll get onto them at some point but kind of cool little um symmetries i suppose what was that thing that George Lucas said? It's like poetry, it rhymes. There you go. <laughs> These are basically the prequel films. <laughs> okay, shall we get into it then? Let's get into it. So the first impression for me, we talked about it last time about the opening, how the James Bond theme wasn't playing at the very start when Bond starts walking across the screen, screen with the circles. Uh, so even seeing that get synced up properly made me excited. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like straight off the bat. Oh, okay, they, they, they you know didn't take them long to sort that out because you're right. It's just like oh, there it is, there it is. That's what I like to see. Yeah, and seeing Sean Connery in the hat again, very nice. I appreciate that. I don't know at what point we lose the hat. I don't know if we're going to see the hat for the whole Sean Connery saga. But this is what I'm most vested in to see. 
Uh, and I think points may have to be deducted based on if the hat is there or not. Would points be deducted based on it not even being Sean Connery? I guess we'll let that off. I'll let that slide. But definitely okay. on the Sean Connery meter, it, it's going to have to be considered because he just looks great in the hat. Because I think the first two are... Forget, I think he's the stunt guy. Bob Simmons, I want to say his name is. Oh. And then as soon as we get to Hatless Bond, I think that is actually Sean Connery. Well, I guess they couldn't get away with it, could they, if they took the hat off? No, absolutely not. For such a dangerous stunt as walking across <laughs> the screen and turning slightly. Hey, Tom, slips, trips and falls are the number one cause of accidents in the workplace. Yeah? He could have slipped, tripped or fell doing that walk. Yeah, I mean, I do know film scenes are quite dangerous, but I think that's more from helicopter crashes and fatal shootings. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so so straight away we get the first opening sequence. And again, we talked about so much in the last episode about all the things that are kind of missing and not quite right. But just like how the opening of the film, the Bond theme plays straight away. You get Sean Connery walking across, he shoots the screen just as it is in all the other films and then it goes into this opening sequence straight away that has this really cool vibe to it um it was something that this whole setup leading all the way up until we get into the film proper it's just all here to build excitement and i have to say it fully sucked me in and i was so ready to go for this film well yeah i suppose it is the first it's the it's the pre-title sequence it's the birth of this as the bond staple which became you know, something you saw in every single film. Um, even though I don't actually think it was filmed as that. I think they, uh, in editing, they moved it to before the, the credits. Yeah, um, I read that as well. It kind of explains, because this opening uh, sequence is quite short as well. And it makes sense because, yeah, I read the same thing. Terrace Young said, let's move that to the front to get a, a shocking moment right Yeah, away. And I mean, it, I, I don't think anyone in the cinema would have, would have been fooled that Bond is dying in the first five minutes of the film. But nonetheless, it still has this great vibe to it. Um, kind of leaves you with questions about who this guy is. Who, what what is this big shady team doing? Um, and I don't know about you, but I got a lot of nostalgia just because of. I know we were talking about Bond games in uh, episode zero of this podcast, but I remember playing the um, <laughs> the hedge mage head sorry hedge maze level of the From Russia of Love game a lot. So. <laughs> I was just like, oh, yeah, I remember walking around this hedge maze. Nostalgia is not the word I would use. Oh, um, what? But I think you're right, as in in terms of that game, this is probably the most iconic, or that was probably the most iconic part of that game. So if you're going to connect it to anything, it probably would be that. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just like, you know, seeing Grant around the corner here and there. Very good. And actually, going back to the film, i got to say... Obviously, spoilers, it's not actually Bond. Shock horror. Hmm. But when they do the whole mask revealing scene, I was fully prepared for it to look terrible. It's just because I just assumed that it would actually look quite good. Yeah, I, th- I thought so. They clearly put in the time to make a proper Sean Connery face mask. I was going to say plastic, but I guess it's rubber, maybe? Yeah, and it had such a great sound effect when it's pulled off. I had to. Go, I actually went back and replayed it. It was just like ASMR in a weird way. Oh god. I that's my that's my ASMR is is Sean Connery plastic masks being pulled off. <laughs> so many truths are coming out about you, Joe. I I think there's gonna be a profile of you once this podcast is done. 
I think there might already be. Yeah, from the, the Roger Moore body pillow. <laughs> to the mopping. You want to be sprayed to down and mopped. Now <laughs> <laughs> ASMR think... uh, Sean Connery Robert mask. Do you not think it was a really good sound effect? Okay, I can appreciate okay. that. Yeah. So roughly what this scene is, is that it cuts to uh, a place at night where we have Sean Connery as Bond creeping around in the classic tux, which is, again, really nice to see that classic Bond look straight away. Uh, it really does evoke of like, yes, Bond, we're seeing Bond here. Uh, and then uh, Agent Grant or this blonde man uh, hunting him. And eventually what happens is that uh, Grant gets the wire out, strangles the uh, James Bond, he dies... But then we get all the lights come on and we're revealed, no, it was just a training exercise. And that James Bond was actually not uh, James Bond. It was just someone posing as him so Grant can train against him. Yeah, exactly. And it, <clears throat> the thing that I really like about this, in hindsight, if you compare it to all the other Bond films, which eventually did have the pre-title sequence being a staple, being this big bombastic, it's usually got a really big stunt involved for the first bit of the film and that's great don't get me wrong i love a good stunt and we'll get onto many in the future bond films but i kind of liked this being quite low-key and actually just a bit more mysterious kind of raising a few questions and not being a great big fireball or a big car chase or something it was a uh, quite refreshing in a way actually i 100 percent agree i think it works very well because this is a very quiet scene it's at night, it's just two people trying to take each other out. And yes, there's that payoff at the end, but even then it doesn't get loud. But as a contrast of the Bond theme at the beginning and then having it go into the From Russia With Love musical piece as well, it works really well. And especially because this is a sequel to a film that did very well, having this quieter moment where you are thinking, as you say, what's going on? I don't understand what's happening. And you still get that payoff of, oh, this is Spectre's training area and that in itself is very cool because dr no talks about specter in the last film so for this film to start off as a extra look into specter and what's going on there is actually really neat uh, and i think it's it just sets everything up very well even though it's a very quiet and to be honest quite short scene yeah there's not really much to it it, it there's just a few peeking around edges and then and then oh out comes the uh well those what is the wire called i want to say it's like a Garrett or something. Garot, is it? Garot, yeah, something, something like, that. like that. Um but I think it did it did a very good job at the start. And I, like you say, following on with the the Spectre thing, kind of just that nice connection to the first film and bearing in mind it was only a year after it came out, then it's going to be in people's minds. Oh yeah, Doctor No. Oh right, yeah, Bond killed him, so they're going to want revenge on specifically this one man. So it all kind of makes sense. Yeah, and it sets up some nice foreshadowing later uh, for when Grant obviously attacks Bonds for real, um, which is very nice because, again, you connect it straight away to this scene and it just makes it a little bit more satisfying when that fight does eventually go down. It's like poetry, Tom. It rhymes. <laughs> Damn you, Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so after that, we do go into the opening credit sequence, which, to be fair, we did have a credit sequence in the last film, but this one feels a little bit more cohesive and put together. There's no free blind mice cutting into this oh, one, which is yeah. very nice. Yeah, I I um, I actually put down about just how impressive I thought this um, pre-title sequence was, because it's so simple. It literally is mm. just a belly dancer and a projector, um, but... 
it kind of like does so much of so little, like the whole waving text and and obviously the music, which isn't the big Matt Monroe song. It's a sort of instrumental version instead, which is a bit strange. I kind of forgot it wasn't in the sequ- uh, like the title sequence. It's on the radio a little bit later on, and then it's obviously at the end credits, but that caught me off guard. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was like such a nice, such a nice intro. And it didn't, I think because it, it was based on just, yeah, a lady dancing in front of the camera with a projector, it didn't have a lot of what I would say ages, a lot of the other title sequences where it's got a bit more kind of editing to it and a lot more like the silhouettes and stuff and as you get further on into the Bond films when they try and do more, this is just very pure and it really works and it just looks great. Yeah, the, the setup that these short scenes do, I think, is is uh, is fantastic. As I already said, these scenes, to me, got me very excited for the rest of the film, which is exactly what they're trying to do. But I, I completely agree that the simplicity of that works really well. But I do remember the fact that it is a musical-only theme, because to me, when you say From Russia With Love theme, I think of this song. I do not think of the focal version, because really? I love this theme so much. Mm. Uh, and the fact that it's that is like my favorite bit of any bond music out there and i always find it weird when people think of the vocal one not because i think that's a bad song i just think this is one of the strongest and greatest bond uh, musical pieces out there and the fact that it goes into the bond theme for a little bit but it doesn't doesn't go all in with that you get this really nice mix so you get this very strong Bond feeling, but you still get this like original music that also feels like Bond. I think it's just such a, an amazing mix. And I don't know exactly the situation with John Barry at this point, because I want to say John Barry didn't compose the score for the last film, Dr. No, but he did for this one. I think you're right. I think it was Monty Norman in Dr. No, but yeah, for this one, it was John Barry. Yeah, so we are now fully in the John Barry era, which lasts quite a long time, and he just does such an incredible job. There's other music across this film that is really good, but this theme in particular is very in your face, but also it ties quite well in with the the visuals, with the belly dancer and things like that. It slows down a little bit, then speeds up. It's it's so good. I just I just love this song. Just it love was it. A, it was a smart choice to have this and not the actual vocal version because. As good as the vocal version is, it is a bit of a crooner song. It's a bit slower. It's a bit more subdued. And it wouldn't... I think you need a bit of a bombastic start, especially after the pre-title sequence, which is quiet in itself. Then you need to like you know get the film going. And it, this is like a way better start, in my opinion. Yeah, you get the reveal. It wasn't really Bond. He's not really dead. And then... You're like, yes. Yes. Yeah, it just works. What I did think was quite funny, though, this is just a minor nitpick. It's not even a nitpick. It was just, I, like, I'm saying how they had all the cool camera angles and making the credits wave and we cool, like, funny ways. Um, but then you could definitely tell at one point, there's like, right, well, now we've got, like, 10 names to list. We can't do that. Uh, let's just put it on a projector and then we'll wave some hands in front of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, that would do. That's exotic enough. Yeah, it, they won't see it on the big screen, will they? <laughs> it's the run out of ideas. <laughs> We only have double the budget. Don't worry about it. Yeah, well, and it definitely shows, I think. So then after that, uh, we move on to a very exciting intro of a chess game, which I know we all love to see. That's what we're um, here for, right? James Bond, chess? Giant, uh, yeah, and a giant chess board as well, so you can see exactly what's happening. Because I know chess. I'm great at chess. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's two two uh, two people. Don't laugh at that. I, could I didn't know. I wasn't. I could be. 
there's two people playing chess and it's all again it's gone back to being quite quiet it's very very you could hear a pin drop and um uh one of the i don't want to say dodgy looking but he definitely looks evil right the evil looking guy gets a note on his little um glass coaster thing saying that you need you know uh, you need to be, you're summoned, basically. You and are required who, at once. Ah, yes, at once. And who is it, of course? It is Blofeld. Uh, and then we get, this is this is the first sight of Blofeld, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So he gets summoned to Blofeld along with, uh, I think he's number five, and uh, Kleb is number three, I think, in terms of numbers. Is that right? I think so. I'm checking my notes. I only wrote her name down. I just called her Russian woman for all my notes. <laughs> That's uh, longer than Kleb. <laughs> yes, it's number three. And then the other person. Number, number three. Yeah, so they get summoned to um, to Blofeld and then we sort of go over a bit of the plan, what eventually ends up as the plot of the film. Um, i got to say, straight off the bat, I don't really like this Blofeld introduction. Okay. I I think I get the whole not showing him. That's fine. They want to keep it secret. I really don't like the voice. I do not like the voice actor they chose for Blofeld. I put down here that it sounds like Santa Claus a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Is it? What's not to love? (laughs) It's just your friendly, maniacal, you know, guy that wants to take over the world. He just sounds like Chris Kringle. (laughs) Well, I get what you're saying. It didn't bother me too much, but when we just had Dr. No... That did a very effective kind of soft-spoken but intelligent kind of voice, and then we get something that's a little bit more, I guess, cartoony and out there. It's, it is a little bit of a mismatch that the idea of this guy with this voice actually is in charge of Doctor No, when Doctor No had a little bit better presence and voice. Yeah, I think that's it. I think coming from Doctor No, where it, it and I think in my head where I've read some of the books with uh, Blofeld, and it's sort of. Written, he's very written as a very sort of I don't know sort of slimy, thin, cold character. That sort of warm, boomy voice didn't quite match with me. But that's that's me comparing to the books. I still think in it, in of itself, I didn't really love the voice. But um, I think the scene overall was quite good. You know, you had the fighting fish, kind of as a bit of a, a what metaphor. That's the word I was trying to think of for um, a spectre kind of biding their time, pitting others against each other, which is obviously going to be um, Britain and, and Russia in the film. And I hope, though I'm I'm pretty sure this is not the case. Do you think any fish were harmed during the making of this film? I think they were definitely <laughs> harmed. I think I that's think so all too. real. <laughs> yeah. They wouldn't kill a tarantula, absolutely not. But Japanese fighting fish, screw them. Feed it to that cat. <laughs> Everyone loves cats. Yeah, so uh, the thing I really liked about this is it's, again... I like the intro because it's straight into, oh, Spectre, this is who Spectre are. And then even following the opening sequence, we don't say, and here's James Bond, for real, doing James Bond films. No, we actually get more set up for Spectre as an organisation. And seeing how it was just almost a passing comment in Doctor No, I think that was very smart. And it's really nice to kind of see this, especially with some quite quiet scenes. The chess match is obviously very quiet because it's a chess match. And this guy... One uh, little detail I quite liked is that as soon as he sees the whole you are required at once, he does one move and wins the game and then just leaves. 
I believe the yeah. implication being there that he's so incredibly smart that he's basically just like toying with the guy, which is a nice subtle kind of setup of this guy knows what he's talking about. It doesn't pay off at all. The guy turns out to be pretty dumb uh, as far as things go and it doesn't work out for him, but it's nice setup. And then getting the whole, it's a little bit cartooning now, Blofeld stroking a cat, telling number three and number five. Oh, we all get that James Bond. Let me tell you that. Uh, but it, it was still enjoyable. It's that line that James Bond always crosses between actually feeling quite evil and tense and being a little bit silly. And I think this one actually finds a good balance where you're learning more about Spectre. There's a little bit of intimidation there, but it's also a bit silly. And like you say, that imagery of the Japanese fighting fish is, I think, surprisingly effective, especially considering the scene ends with one of them being fed to the cats. Like, that's just not a very nice image to see. Yeah. Yeah. It, I think we, we touched on this before in, in Dr. No about how with um, films like Austin Powers now, it's kind of difficult sometimes to see things before they became a cliche and a bit of a spoof. But I suppose this is one of those scenarios where it's just a guy stroking a cat. Like back then, I'm sure it was normal, not normal, but like it wouldn't be funny. It's just this mysterious character. But now it's kind of like it's difficult to get the image of Dr. Evil out of your head necessarily. Um, but I think even with that, like keeping the character hidden and especially committing to it as well for, for quite a while in the film series, as we'll see, was uh, quite a bold move and I, I like it. Yeah, I like seeing the cat and not seeing Blofeld's face. I think where it gets a bit dumb for me, and we'll have to get there when we get to the later films, is when you see Blofeld with the full get-up still stroking the cat. That's when it kind of loses me a bit. But when it's just the cat being stroked a little bit, for me that still works well enough within the context of the film. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. And also worth noting is that they don't even call him Blofeld at all. Uh, Throughout this whole film, they just call him number one. I believe, which again gives him a little bit more mystery. Yeah, that's true. Although weirdly, it does say his name in the credits. Yes, <laughs> like in four as well, like Ernest Blofeld. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I don't quite understand why they would do that, but hey, maybe it was just a diff- different team, and they were, didn't they didn't get the memo. <laughs> it's like, oh wait, we were supposed to keep that secret. <laughs> you put the question mark in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> so after that scene. We don't even get to Bond after this. We actually go back to the larger state where that guy was training and killed the fake James Bond earlier. But this time it's during the day and the Russian woman or number three gets a tour of the place, which they call Spectre Island, which did make me laugh a little bit. <laughs> they got an island and named it after themselves. It's <laughs> it's a little bit childish, but sure. Why not? Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like Monster Island. Yeah, there's monsters there. (laughs) And there's Spectre here, so it's Spectre Island. (laughs) Yeah. And this whole scene is also a little bit silly. This is where you can start, the budget starts coming through a little bit, I feel. Because as she's taking a tour of this facility, they're showing training all the different troops and things like that. But there's such an insane variety of these exercises going on in such a small area. Like you got people shooting at targets, that's fair enough. But then you got someone with a flamethrower just burning down a target. Like, I guess you need target practice for a flamethrower, I guess? Hey, I guess so. (laughs) Maybe this is his first day. It's my first day. I did think... It was a little bit silly. I did think that whole, it, you, yeah, you're right. You could definitely tell, like they had this a lot more money, and they thought, right, let's just put all this stuff going on on screen. It's just to show what we can do. 
but actually when you have this the the scene preceding it where it's this really super serious the number three and number five meeting number one and you know this is their plot and the fighting fish and then you go from that to people like somersaulting over flames and it's a little bit like whiplash from that but i've got to stand by what i said at the beginning i i have to embrace the cheesiness and so i'm gonna let it slide yeah i i would agree i let it slide but you got things like karate going on as well (laughs) so that's the thing it's quite interesting because if you had to do this scene and take it 100% seriously how would you do it i feel like it would be very militant you know like it's all about efficiency and everyone beating uh, to the same drum and being very precise and to the point but this one actually goes the other way where they all just seem kind of insane and we've just got all these people just with all these weapons just going like ha 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 bang bang bang, bang, bang and stuff like that <laughs> uh, which is kind of the opposite of what you would kind of expect which does make it quasi to parody but you know like you say it's james bond so they're not supposed to be super super scary just kind of like look at all these guys with all this equipment that james bond might have to fight although i don't think he fights any of them ever in this film so there's that no that poor guy never got to use his flamethrower no he trained so hard as well (laughs) all that training for nothing and then eventually number three gets to uh grant my notes say blonde man the entire time. I didn't pick up on his name at all. Okay, so we have Russian lady, blonde man. I didn't Bond, use... Is Bond I... dark-haired man? <laughs> Scottish hairy man. <laughs> I did put, actually, that he has very... Th- very His eyebrows are humongous. I couldn't stop looking at them on screen. Oh, yeah. Sorry, that was uh, besides the point. Do go on. Uh, yeah, so then we get to him who... Like, a woman gets undressed for no reason, I don't think. I think yeah. that it was very clear, like, let's get some sex appeal in here. I don't know why it's there. Not when you have a uh, Kleb on screen. Oh. I know, that's where everyone should be looking. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see Grant's very short towel? It, it, it was ludicrously short. I don't know. Where do you get a towel like that? I, I don't know. Did he? He must have picked up the wrong towel. He must have picked up a face towel or a hand towel. <laughs> You went to the flannel uh, section rather than the towel section. It was like, you know what? I'm a pretty tough guy. Let's see if anyone laughs at me. (laughs) Spectre Island needs some clearer signage for their towels. (laughs) They've got their training down in flamethrowers, but they need towel training. That's where we're going to win this war. (laughs) Now I just just, like vision all these people flying around towels going everywhere. Uh, but I, I guess the with the whole woman massage thing, I think it comes down to what they do quite a lot in this film. And that's making this guy a parallel to James Bond. There are so many things where they're trying to set him as just a Spectre version of Bond. And I would guess that that scene and a woman kind of massaging him out in the sun, which is actually the next scene is is the exact same thing. We just see James Bond being massaged by a woman in a very sunny place. So I do believe there's this straight off the bat they're trying to make these parallels. That Yeah, that is actually a really good point. I'd not even really thought about that because you're right. As we'll see, there is a very strong effort to almost make it like for like, even down to the, the, the camera shots that we'll see. So I didn't even put the two and two together about how it's going to be. Yeah, like Bond's a ladies' man. So this guy's got to have have a woman as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, they don't go deep into it, but all those little things that you associate with Bond, they do make an effort to make this guy, the 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 blonde man, I need to get out of that habit, uh, Agent Grant, have all those same things. And it's really effective. So this is just the first one of all these little things they add in throughout the film. What I thought wasn't very effective was Kleb's method of approval. One punch to the stomach, good enough. Doesn't seem very thorough, if you ask me. No, she's quite a small, fragile woman. <laughs> Don't tell her that. No, I wouldn't dare. She might give me the old knife shoe if I did that. Oh, yeah. But, like, yeah, it's very odd. I think she just wanted to get a hit in for a laugh, almost. Like, she puts on a knuckle duster and then punches him in the stomach and is like, yep, you're all good. But it's like, it would be quite funny if he just went down. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh! <laughs> or he just punched her back. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, yeah. there's so many opportunities to parody this like we talked about austin powers but it does kind of write itself if somebody it was to do a bond parody you can see why there were so many of them oh yeah definitely so the next scene is not even us getting the bond we have not even officially got to james bond yet uh, instead we get to the next part of their plan so i don't know if i want to try and attempt to explain specter's plan in this in one go because it is a little bit complicated. It's definitely a step up from Dr. No. Yeah, so I think roughly, because number three, number five, and, and Blofeld discussed it, they are going to trick a Russian woman who's dedicated to Russia in to pretend that she's into James Bond and is going to give James Bond a machine that I don't quite remember what it does. It Yeah, the Lector, as far as I understood, it was basically... Like um, you know, the machines from World War Two that they cracked. I think it was one of those, like a like a ciphering machine. Yeah. So they're going to get her to give it to James Bond, but I'm pretty sure the whole time they were planning on stealing it back by using this Agent Grant. Yes. So yeah, Spectre, who um, Kleb uh, went over to, defected to. That's the word I was trying to think of. Um, still acting as if she's head of I think head of operations in in um, in Russia, uh, kind of sets an assignment for. I forgot everyone's names. What's the not Natalia? That's not her name. Tanya. 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 Yes, that's yeah. right. Um, sets her up to basically pretend to defect to Bond, fall in love with him, give him the the lecture, and you're right. Then Spectre steps in. Steals the lector back, sells it back to the Russians, makes loads of money, maybe improves Spectre Island's uh, towel capabilities. Yeah, and I think it's also tied to the Cold War where they want to create more friction between the East and the West. So they're going to do that while also making money off this uh, whole transaction. Yeah, just be thankful. This is by far not the most complex Bond plot. Wait till we get to Octopussy. (laughs) We're going to be screwed. Yeah, probably. Like, it's quite interesting though, because I've always somewhat had a little bit of a hard time following Bond films. I don't want to make myself feel stupid, but even in the Daniel Craig era, the first time I watched some of these films, it is actually quite easy to miss some of these details. And interestingly enough, from Russia with Love, similar to Doctor No, we talked about it in the last podcast, moves at a very fast pace, and especially everything up to the train. 
because in my head, I split this film in two. Everything before the train and everything on the train and after the train. And everything before the train actually moves very quick. And it is actually very easy to miss some of these kind of plot details. Not enough where you don't know what's going on and you get lost, but enough so some of the kind of smaller things that happen in the plot can completely go, you know, you can completely miss them and then just move on to the next thing, which is Bond fighting the bad guys. Don't worry, Tom. You don't feel stupid because I'm exactly the same. I'm exactly the same. And I think you're right. I think it's where it's like such a mixture of action. You've got to have the action. You've got to have this. You've got to have that. But all oh, right, we also need to have the plot in there as well. It is very easy to miss, as you say, little details. They don't ruin the whole film because it it's not crucial points. And at the end of the day, especially with these early Bond films, a lot of them can just be Bond versus Blofeld or Bond versus the Russians. And that's all you really need to know. Like, oh, they're the bad guys. These are the good guys. But um, I think with this one, yeah, it just about toes the line, I'd say, of moving quickly, but but keeping the plot relatively um, well known. Yeah, you can certainly follow it, but I feel like Dr. No had a lot more aggressive streamlining in terms of the plot to make it quite easy to follow, which led to a more simplified plot, where this one, I believe, follows the book a lot more. And it means that you get some of these kind of storylines that more, well, are just kind of, they're not streamlined in the same way. They just happen quite fast. And it's not really a negative against the film, because similar to Dr. No, I appreciate the fast pace. This is not a film that kind of sits on one thing for too long. If there's a quiet scene and a slower scene, it's very deliberate. It's very much a, you know, going after something. And then the next scene will be very quick and it can get very chaotic and you get this nice mix. So I think it works in the film's favour, but it does feel like it's one of those adaptations where it wants to put everything in from the book, which means certain things do get a little bit rushed. But because it's James Bond, it it, it doesn't matter too much. Yeah, you just sort of move with it, don't you? And I suppose, speaking of that, we finally do see James Bond eventually. I didn't actually look at how many minutes in, but it's got to be... What, at least 15 minutes, I'd say? I think at least that, yeah. We've had like five, six scenes already. Yeah, yeah. So um, after Spectre Island and uh, and Grant, we do see his alter ego to an extent. Bond there with uh, Sylvia Trench returns from the first film. Um, that as... was really nice. That was a really nice bit of continuity. I, I had no memory of that happening but yeah the woman who was at the table playing poker well not poker whatever the snap when they were playing snap and james bond did his <laughs> intro she comes yeah. back and is who bond is hanging out with in this scene yeah so you know bond does have girlfriends it looks like at least they they hang around for a little bit longer than than some others do um and they're just sort of canoodling in a in a is it are they in the boat I think they're, they're by, by the, the side, side of the river. Yeah. And just sort of, I think there's a bit of a, a bit of the old back and forth flirtiness. And then Bond gets the call that uh, he is being just like, just like the uh, Spectre agent Bond is being summoned by M with a very, um, what I would imagine quite a high tech phone in his car. Yeah. It would have to be right for the sixties. Yeah. So there was a couple of things that stood out about this scene because it's a very simple scene. It's just Bond hanging out with a girl and then they caught up. But the first one is that this is when the From Russia With Love vocal theme plays over the radio. 
And I think it's got to be the only time in the whole franchise that they play the theme during, like, actually playing in worlds and not be part of the score. And it's a little bit surreal to think about James Bond just, like, listening to his own themes while hanging out. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah, there is a term for that. I can't remember what it was now. Diegetic? Non-diegetic? It's one of them. But yeah, where it's like part of the part of the actual world. Um, I did, yeah, I wonder why they did that as well. Why even just have that little taste of it? It's yeah, really I guess they just wanted choice. to get it in, I would assume. Like, yeah. I don't know if they were that worried about the charts at this point, because I, as we know on later films when they were doing the themes, I think there was a very conscious effort to say, yes, we want this to be a successful song in its own right, so we need to kind of get it in there. And the fact that they skipped it for this might have been like that. But again, this is the early 60s. I, I don't even know if the Beatles were big by this point when this film came out. Like, they were probably just starting, so I don't know if the, the charts were a consideration, but it might be one explanation that they just wanted to get it out there in any way they could perhaps yeah i don't know just a bit like you say a bit weird if you actually think about it it's a bit weird but you kind of so quick you just move on i just like the idea of like daniel craig's bond listening to you know my name and i'm like i do know my name that's me (laughs) (laughs) on his uh ipod touch or something in 2006 yeah (laughs) yeah no one of those like uh mp3 players that's like 256 megabytes oh the ones that you always used to get free on like, like with the newspaper or something if you, yeah it was just a usb drive with a screen basically yeah 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 uh, and the second thing that stood out to me about this scene and it happened in the last one as well the sound effects in this film can be very odd so in the last scene when number three is talking to tanya there's like she does her whip number three has a little whip so not a whip but you know like a stick that like snaps and the sound's mm. really weird. And then you, we get a very similar sound in this one where uh, Bond's girlfriend reaches for something and then Sean Connery just slaps her hand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we just get this really loud slapping sound. And it's like, what? It's, and there's like a few of these throughout the film. They do a few like whipping, slapping sounds and they're really loud and in your face. They made me laugh every time it happened because you just can't, you can't miss it. There are quite a few slaps in this film. Later on, I wrote down that there was a great slap. <laughs> like, I don't know. I mean, obviously not the slap itself, but I think it is the sound. You're right. It's like so it's very crisp. It really stands out. It's kind of like the mask pudding sound effect. You see, it's not that weird. It's not that. You're right. I, I'm just more into slapping, I guess. <laughs> slap is only. Oh, <laughs> uh, good. Yeah. I'm glad that you, you made that about the game instead of just, I just, you know. Don't want people to think you go around just slapping people now. No, no. Not yet, anyway. Not yet. So after Bond is summoned, we obviously uh, cut to the offices in London and we get uh, another, well, I was about to say another money penny Bond scene. Not quite that. There's there's M as well. And we get, um, I think there's a couple times it's done this where Bond will start doing his usual sort of flirtiness and then he's sort of caught out by someone else being there. Um, obviously M being the one. And um, so that means that you don't don't really get much of a... I think you do after the briefing scene, Bond and Moneypenny, but not as much. Um, But yeah, he goes in and uh, then we sort of get, you know, the briefing scene, the typical Bond template uh, with M about how, yeah, there's there's a strange Russian lady who has fallen in love with him and how it's quite clearly a trap, but uh, they know it's a trap. They're going to do it anyway. 
because they really want that lector, which I still think is a bit of a strange choice. I think they sort of gloss over that being a plot point where it's like, yeah, we're just going to do it anyway because we want it. Whereas I'm sure there might have been other options to do. I don't know. I, I quite like it, to be honest. And I think the main problem is that they don't actually explain what it is. Like, you, I don't know what that is. I guess you could kind of guess. All you need to know is it's just a thingamajig. I guess what, a MacGuffin? Really? They just yeah. have to go and get the MacGuffin? Because the film itself doesn't say, this is why this is important, why we want it. Or if it did, I missed it. I don't know. It might. They might have said something about the Russians. Uh, sorry, not the Russians. The, the Americans have been after one for ages or something like that. Maybe. Could be making yeah, that up, though. It's, again, it's more about what people want with it, not actually kind of what it is. Yeah. Um, but one thing you didn't mention is about this is the first time like Bond throws his hat onto the rack as well oh yeah as soon as he enters the room he throws it on and it doesn't look like that impressive of a throw to me i don't want to take anything away from from sean connery and his throwing skills but for something that becomes quite iconic it's a little bit of like he leans forward so much to make the throw that i've made better throws like mucking around in school when everyone's just screwing up balls and trying to throw it into a bin or across the way You've heard it here first, folks. Tom thinks he's better than James Bond himself. Yeah, that's what this podcast is all about, isn't it? That's what we're trying to do. <laughs> I will say, I, I agree, but it because it becomes that little that little thing he does, I always think about the scene in um, Johnny English <laughs> where he throws the coat and it just misses and goes out the window. <laughs> yeah, it goes flying out. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, I just love that. So um, yeah, I'm thankful that it, it led to that anyway. Yeah, and I also like the dialogue in this one because when they're talking about it being a trap and the M is saying to Bond, like, oh, this woman has seen your photograph and fallen in love with you. Who does that? And then Sean Connery or Bond just turns around and says, maybe it's just mental. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, maybe. And then just move on. <laughs> Different times. It's not wrong, though. No. Well, yeah, we'll see. And then we do get, we kind of mentioned last time that there was a bit of a, a bit of a cue scene in Bond getting his new gun, the Walther. But uh, this time we actually do get the cue scene. Although I don't think he's called Q. I think he's from Q Branch. Yeah, they just say Q Branch for this film. And obviously it is the first appearance of Desmond Llewellyn, who uh, sticks around for quite a while <laughs> in the series. Um, mm. And it kind of starts very, very simply with, as, you know, as far as gadgets go, no exploding pens or or laser cameras quite yet we're just getting a nice attache case with dagger in it and some gold coins and a tear gas if you open it a certain way um and what i really like about this is granted it's all kind of used at once but bond actually does use the gadget and it does save his life in the end so it's nice that you get this and it's not just a joke it is actually useful to him yeah, all of it as well, right? It's there's a it's a briefcase that has many different kind of gadgets and and things to it, and he uses every single one of them throughout the film, and it's yeah. nice to see that because he's also got that briefcase wherever he goes, pretty much. So you get to see it a ton, which I think is really cool. And also, I think uh, Agent Grant, I think it's another parallel. I think he has a suitcase as well when he gets onto the train later. So you see suitcases a lot in this film. And because you've had this nice description from Q saying this is what this is and you can use this and this, it's always on the back of your mind. And that makes it more satisfying when all this stuff pays off. Yeah, it's all, 
it's really bad when you get, and I know there are some films that we'll get to where that I don't think a gadget is very well explained and then suddenly it just saves a day. It, it just kind of feels a bit deflating when you get that. So it is nice, as you say, when something is consistent throughout the, throughout the film, the audience knows exactly what it is. And so therefore the payoff is all the better for it. Yeah, absolutely. Something that stood out to me about this scene is there's interesting to see the parallels of, we talked about M and James Bond having that chemistry last time, and this is kind of already in full swing, but he goes straight from talking to M to talking to Q, who he also has a you know chemistry with and relationship with later down the line, and there's a certain back and forth, but sadly none of that is here. Like Q is simply just the guy with the briefcase that explains it, where Bond is making kind of jokes and stuff to M, he doesn't do that quite yet to Q. So I don't know at what point that gets fully fleshed out, but for this one, we got a very muted Q. So it was exciting to see him because I was like, oh, that, yes, Q, awesome. Uh, but we do get a very toned down version. He is just a guy who explains what's going on with the gadgets. Yeah, there's no sort of rapport yet and no sort of do be careful 007, which is kind of weird, but it does make them seem actually quite professional <laughs> just just getting on with it yeah and especially because it does happen in front of m so i guess it somewhat makes sense there's no q branch that bond goes to to report to he simply q is there when m is giving him the lowdown and the brief and then q just like here's the stuff you could use it all happens in one place and it happens quite quick yeah and actually having said that i guess there, there is that kind of element to this film, but it's the Spectre training. That is basically the Q branch. That's what that will become in later films. Yeah, the silly part, someone using... I think that actually happens, doesn't it? Someone using a flamethrower and it going yeah. wrong? Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. So we then go on to the next scene, and this made me laugh, and it only made me laugh because we spoke about it. We get another bloody airport scene where the James Bond theme is playing over the top. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they love their airport scenes, didn't they? Yeah, it's like, but this is a theme throughout this film, and it happens in Doctor No, but this film in general has a lot more going between locations and things like that, and pretty much any time Bond is seen travelling, they play the James Bond theme. But because I noticed it in Doctor No, it's because we talked about it, seeing it here, it's not really that bad, it's not really that distracting, but once you notice it, it's like, okay, they actually only use the James Bond theme for this like, you have this great theme, and they only use it for, like, Bond gets a taxi and goes somewhere else. And then when he <laughs> arrives, it stops. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It, yeah. It didn't, it didn't last too long, thankfully. Um, and what I did like about this airport scene is, it's again, it kind of works really well when you've watched Doctor No, not long beforehand, where in that film, he is... He uh, there's a driver that comes up to him and is like, you know, here's your car for you. And then he goes and checks and, oh, he hasn't actually got a scheduled driver. It's a trap. Uh, whereas in this one, it's like, oh, okay, this time they have a code. So, they, you know, none of that problem, none, none of those will happen again. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great little progression from that. But what I took away from all this is the parallels to Dr. Noah are just already really strong. Like, yes, the beginning of the film was a bit different and is a little bit more polished in terms of that James Bond formula. But if you took that stuff out, so much of this stuff is kind of so similar to Dr. No. And the fact that they play the James Bond theme at the exact same moment in the exact same part of the film, and then there's this whole plot that kicks off with this scene is that James Bond is being followed, and then the driver explains that's just how things work here. 
the location being Istanbul, which is where a good part of this film takes place, or at least everything up to the train takes place in Istanbul. Um, but it's so similar to Doctor No, like the Bond getting there, playing the theme, meeting up the driver, going along, being followed, like something's afoot and there's a mystery here. It's just so similar to that film. Yeah, and actually you could argue the the similarities continue when after they're chased, not, not chased, sorry, followed um, through Istanbul and then you meet the character of um, Karim Bey, I don't actually know what he is in terms of like ranking or if he's just a you know an important person or is he is he uh, related to MI6? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think he's directly tied to the British, but obviously has some sort of relationship with them because James Bond goes there. It might be one of those where like in a previous book or something, it's just a friend of Bond because they obviously did get on very well. I think it's one of those that maybe if you read the book, it would make a lot more sense. But in this film, it's just like, yes, Bond goes and meets up this with this Bay character and then he's his main contact throughout Istanbul. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause I was going to say, I was, I really like this character that we do see quite a lot of in this film. Uh, quite, I, I found him quite um, kind of warm and, and friendly, a very likable character. And that kind of made me just think of, that's exactly what we said about Quarrel in the first film. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very similar where you just have this character that, ultimately is a bit expendable as we as we find out um but whilst they're there have a really big presence yes the the impact on the film is quite big and some of that is because there's not a massive amount of characters in this film not that i would say it's a small amount of characters but in terms of who bond spends most of his time with he spends way more time with bay than he does with tanya like tanya being the bond girl yes she does come back and does have a kind of a presence here but bay feels like a much bigger character and the fact that you see his influence on istanbul and his operation and things like that it's almost like bond i I wrote this down later on but bond does very little for like maybe not the first hour but first like 40 minutes of this film because he literally we have a lot going on with spectre and they take us through that bond then gets the assignment and flies out and then he follows bay and goes through his operation and what the first kind of mini plot is, is just him. And Bond just kind of happens to be there to help out. And even with the, the gypsy fight that's coming up later, Bond's just kind of there and just kind of rolls with it. Um, and it's quite interesting to see. It, it's another reason why I feel like this felt quite similar to the book. Because I think if you were writing the film, you would probably make Bond a bigger presence and have him drive the plot forward more when really he kind of goes on a tour of Istanbul going through everything that's like happening there. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I think part of that, I don't know how um, it links up to the book, although I think you are right about the book, but there is that element of uh grant is sort of in the footsteps of bond throughout the whole film and ultimately as we've gotten to makes bond look a bit amateurish because it's sort of like bond's guardian angel at various points in the film um which does kind of yeah has that sort of uh leaves that sort of feeling of bond is just sort of wandering around and not really doing much and is just sort of winging it because there's this other person taking out all the people and stuff in the background Um, Yeah, like Bond, they never have him do anything stupid to make Grant look better, which is something I massively appreciate. Because obviously that's the easy way out. You just have your main character suddenly just not do things they they wouldn't do. But Bond very much acts like Bond and he's trying to be smart and stay on top of things. It's just we have Grant throughout this film and we've already got it to where he's actually there at the airport, I believe. 
and then yeah. after this scene um grant or after bond arrives grant then kills i can't remember who he kills but he kills someone and then dumps that body off as the at the russian embassy i think he kills the russians that were following them because then it looks like the british have killed the russians or something like that it's basically meddling and stirring the pot yeah, it ties into the Cold War stuff, but I think that story literally goes nowhere. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And um, one thing I did think when we got to this part of the film where you know we're in Istanbul, we're driving through the streets, and then eventually we go see some of the um, kind of landmarks of Istanbul as well, is we've mentioned that there's a lot of similarities to Doctor No, but what I really like about this film is it completely goes the other way in terms of locations where... Doctor No, primarily set on um, Jamaica, has a very, very kind of specific vibe, you know, jungle, trees, tropical beaches. This is all very kind of city streets, people, busy, dirty. And I, I really liked how different it was in that regard. Yeah, this feels like it's going through the, so, the same motions that Doctor No did in terms of showing off Jamaica. But instead we get Istanbul, and like you say, very different location, very different feel. I'm assuming it was picked because it was like the center of the Cold War and it has that really good mix. Like, even though this is called from Russia with love, as far as I'm aware, Bond or nothing takes place in Russia, it just takes place in Istanbul. Yeah, I think you're right. And eventually, Croatia, I want to say, is where the, the ending kind of bit takes place. Oh, don't ask me about geography. I'm useless. But I will say, um, I think one of the reasons why this film was picked is because. It's one of those things you always hear about, about uh, John F. Kennedy's... It was in John F. Kennedy's favourite books or something of that year. Yeah, was it before. Time magazine or something yeah. like that? Yeah, and that sort of uh, prompted uh, Broccoli and, and Saltzman to pick this over uh, another one. Yeah, I mean, it's a great choice to go from that Jamaica with Dr. No and from Russia with Love, even though we, we mentioned it last time, I think, was this kind of planned out, as far as I can tell... No, from Russia with Love was not picked while they were shooting and planning Doctor No. It was picked after the fact for the reason you just described with JFK. But it actually comes together really well. Like it's actually a very smart setup and actually a really good foundation, these first two films for the series, because we get that differences. Yes, definitely. So in more parallels to Doctor No, we then get Bond going to the hotel. And then taking a look around, checking behind painting, uh, trying to find if there's any bugs. He does eventually find a bug on his telephone, or I believe that's what that is. Um, and then calls up and says, the room won't do. I need to change it out. And then he, saying the bed's too small. <laughs> Which, the scene's not like a hugely comedic scene, but it did make me smile, to be honest. Because he's calling the front desk and the woman is being talked to by the manager. And he's like, just tell him there's no other rooms. Just say it's that or the bridal suite. Like, that's going to throw him off. Like, that's going to be enough. He'll never take the bridal suite. <laughs> uh, and then she's like, well, there's no other rooms for the bridal suite. And he's like, oh, it sounds lovely. Excellent. <laughs> that's that. Then they move oh, on. foiled again. <laughs> oh, no, we shouldn't have offered him the bridal suite. <laughs> they have too good training, these double O agents. <laughs> um, I was going to say about that, that scene where he's checking the room for bugs. I really did not like that scene because... And I think it's the same, you're right, I think it's exactly the same as Doctor No, where you have the Bond, or was it the opposite, where I had no music in Doctor No? 
I can't remember now. But anyway, the Bond theme is playing in this scene where Bond is literally just walking around, <laughs> looking behind picture frames, the the telephone, drawers, whatever. Very, very like basic, dull scene, arguably. But you have the Bond theme playing, and not only does the Bond theme play, <laughs> it just doesn't work at all. But I don't know if you noticed this, or maybe it was just my TV, I don't know. The volume of the Bond music was constantly going up and down. It was really distracting. I didn't notice that. My notes, I just said it plays for a while because this is not a short. Like at the airport, it's somewhat short and he's doing stuff. But this one is just him checking the paintings and it plays forever or it feels really long. It is. It is really long. And maybe it's just, I don't know, maybe the one I watched on Amazon. But to me, it was like, why is it suddenly sort of ducks in volume and then, oh, he looks behind the photo frame and oh, it's up again. It's like, well, it doesn't... it doesn't it seems like a mistake more than anything yeah this scene is is a little bit odd it, it didn't kind of click with me too much because it kind of moves on quite quick but dr no there's a very real purpose to what they were doing right they want to set up this character dr no make him all mysterious and make sure like there's eyes everywhere and you've got to be careful and that film is very effective at doing that this film i quite like how they go for the angle of everyone is watching everyone at all times the mm. russians watch the uh, the turkish people and the turkish people watch the russians i think that's a really cool spin on it but you didn't really need the whole oh he's been bugged by the russians or the turkish people or, i'm not even sure who bugged him at this point it, it's a little bit confused and if you kind of cut this scene out you wouldn't miss anything in this film yeah that's true because even then, even the room he does eventually get the bridal suite, that's also bugged. I mean, it's even worse. It's got a full sort of like one-way mirror thing in it, as we see. So I don't know why they couldn't have just jumped straight to that. Like, and just, yeah, they just they just watch things. Like, it's not that far of a leap to then need this first bit where it's a bit of a setup to that. Um, one little thing as well. Last time you mentioned about noticing all the different um, fades as transitions. Yeah. Dr. No. And since you said that, I sort of paid a bit more attention to him this time. And the one that really caught my eye was as he's going up to his hotel room and he goes in the lift, it's like you get an upwards fade. I love it. It's so cheesy. <laughs> That's where the budget went, upwards fade. They didn't do that in Doctor No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, we can go in different directions now. <laughs> uh, so we actually get quite a brief scene. I mentioned about uh, Agent Grant killing somebody. This scene actually takes place after the hotel scene. But we get to see him, I think, for the first time properly in his suit, which is another parallel. Throughout this film, Agent Grant is actually in really nice suits. I don't know if they're the exact same suits that James Bond wear, but they're at least very similar. Because throughout this film, Sean Connery wears the quite iconic at this point, the grey suit. Maybe it's not the you know it's not the most iconic one, but it's quite iconic for people who know this film. And I want to say Grant also wears a lot of grey suits, so we get to see him trying to frame bond also looking very good in a suit he does look very good in a suit that is true so then we cut back over to uh karen bay who is in his nice in his nice house like hidden behind a wall there's loads of hidden things gotta love it i think actually on that note it's a door right i think it's just hidden by like a single bit of cloth like a curtain i feel like mm-hmm. that probably isn't enough i don't know just think there could maybe be a little bit more um, discreet with beads. <laughs> You're thinking beads. Yeah, I don't, everyone hates those beads going through them. No one would even want to go through, even if they knew. 
You'd so, see the Spectre agent run into the beads and just get tangled and then just die for some reason. <laughs> Not the beads. Not the beads. Anyway, um, Krim is there with his, I don't, I don't want to say wife, I think maybe just one of his women. <laughs> I put random woman. I don't know who she is. Random woman who's kind of uh, lusting for him whilst he's doing some paperwork or something like that. Um, kind of getting a bit annoyed with her, even though, come on, she's way above his league. Um and then we get a nice explosion because it was a, an assassination attempt, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but the assassination attempt was by the Russians or was it by Spectre? I take it as the Russians. And this is, I said earlier about uh, storylines being quite quick and being quite confusing and, and you can miss stuff. This is the exact storyline I was talking about. So for the ha- first half of this film... There's this storyline about somebody trying to kill uh, Karen Bay, of which kind of just gets wrapped up quite cleanly and then they kind of move on. But I take it as the Russian that they see in the next scene when using uh, the periscope. I think it's a periscope. Mm -hmm. Because that's the one they eventually kill later on. So I take it as him doing it. Exactly why, I don't know. I think it's just meant to be Cold War stuff. The Russians are trying to take out the Turkish. The Turkish are trying to take out the Russians. And they've just hired someone who is a killer to take him out. But again, it doesn't really go anywhere. But I take it as them. And actually, Spectre has nothing to do with this bit. Spectre's part of this is simply Grant following Bond around, making sure he's safe to make sure this plan goes to plan. Or or Spectre's plan uh, goes off. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, either way, Karen Bay assumes it's the Russians and it's... I wrote down his name somewhere, uh, Krilenko, Krilenko, something like that. Um, because yeah, Bond comes along and they they basically go under the city through some reservoirs um, to go spy on the Russian consulate. Because as Karen Bay says, he managed to get hold of a like a Royal Navy periscope and had it installed underground, right onto uh, the meeting room inside the Russian consulate. And uh, that's where we see some um, nasty Russians. And one of them is the one that he kind of assumes tried to kill him, who's this very nasty evil man that likes to kill people. Takes pleasure in it, I think he says. Yes. And again, that character kind of goes nowhere. But we get this kind of scene of them on a boat and they're going through this like sewer canal to get to this point. Did you notice when the oil went in the water, there was like eels or something around it. I wondered what that shot was because I noticed it lingered on that that for a, a few seconds, and I, I I didn't actually know what I was meant to be looking at. I don't think they're eels, but I put eels because that was the closest I could see. But yeah, you get the zoom in off their oar in the water, and I think it's supposed to show look how nasty and horrible this water is with these creatures. But I don't know if they ever say what's in the water, and I don't know if you actually really get a proper look, and they don't cut back to it again. So it's just kind of like, oh, I guess there was something in the water. That's strange. And then there's no payoff to it. So it's like, all right, okay. I was just kind of hoping you saw what it is. I I should have paused it, really. But there's some weird things going on in that water, which I would guess are eels. But this is a sewer. So who knows? Yeah, that's a bit strange. You're probably right. It is something like that. But then, yeah, why would they not have... I would understand if maybe later on there's a chase and then, oh, someone falls in the water and I red starts to appear you know the typical thing in the water but i don't know that was i did notice that but i never actually looked at it properly 
Hmm. So this was the first part in the Bond follows Krim Bay or Krim Rim Bay around. I put his name. I put a smiling man in my notes. <laughs> Wait, he doesn't smile I really all the time. See your notes. I really but the first see time you. you see him, he's just like beaming, and I was like, "Ah, oh, smiling man." <laughs> so your names are based on like first impressions: blonde, Russian, smiling. <laughs> yeah, basically, you've nailed it. I like it. Um, so after that scene, we then get them going to the gypsy camp. Now, I don't really want to touch a lot of this because, yeah, it's probably very offensive to some people. It, there's no way this kind of holds up. So I, I don't know if it's really worth going into that bit. I try to just take this scene as it was and just kind of laugh at the absurdity of it. Because if you try and take it seriously, it's like, this is probably very offensive to a lot of people. Yes, I, I'm not a big fan of the whole gypsy camp theme uh, scene. I think it, like you say, it does get quite silly very quickly. It kind of goes from zero to 100 because, yeah, the premise is Karen Bay takes Bond to some friends he knows at a gypsy camp. And then they have this whole sort of plot about there's a blood feud thing. And I really just didn't care. And I don't really think it does anything apart from having a, you know, having a reason to have a sort of cat fight on the screen. Um so that I was not a big fan of. And then, yeah, the idea is, is that whilst Bond is here, um, I did write down his name. It is Krilen- Krilenku, yeah, the, the Russian guy who was trying to kill Karen Bay. All of him and his cronies come along and attack the camp. And that just leads to this. It's just I just thought it was funny how how quickly it just goes from nothing until fire and horses everywhere it's just mad yeah so this has the same mentality as what we were saying about the spectre camp although even more so where everything's kind of cut well somewhat calm i suppose when they attack it's like yeah it i it reminded me of the anchorman scene and that anchorman joke where they're just sitting around saying that really got out of hand fast (laughs) brick killed a guy this is basically that i wouldn't be surprised if they were inspired by this scene because it goes from just a few people coming in with guns and shooting which you know we've seen shootouts before in bond there's lots of them but as you say they start burning stuff for no real reason the horse freaks out there's two people like wrestling and rolling around with each other quite high up but then they just fall off for no reason Mm -hmm. and it's just like (laughs) and also it has that music as well which i don't know if it's the music i don't know if that's used in any other bond film but it's pretty iconic where you know there's a chaotic mental scene going on screen in this film because a certain soundtrack kicks in which is like dun 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 yeah (laughs) and it just feels crazy i'm trying to think what that theme's called but yeah it is it's just I did at one point I thought, oh, this is okay, this is alright, I don't mind this. And then it was just like Bond traipsing around, just pushing over some people, and they just like fall over like it's nothing. And it just got a bit too much. Um the the one bit of payoff it did have is kind of you have Grant once again saving Bond's life, kind of taking out someone as a he's about to be attacked behind him. Um so you sort of cement that idea that uh grant is is a a match is an equal to bond someone to be feared um but i gotta say i was kind of pleased when when this scene was over especially because you had the um is it the the leader of the camp yeah the guy with the mustache is it sounds like just so 
so over the top. Like, thank you, thank you. And it's just all so stupid. <laughs> it's so, you know, you put the racist racist angle to one side for a little bit. And I just think it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I accept it's offensive and not okay. But just like in those moments, he's such a silly character. Because before, like, yeah, again, like you say, when they're just hanging out... And Bond says something nice, and he was just like, thank you, thank you, ha, 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 ha. But then when Bond saves his life and he says thank you, it just sounds like an NPC from a video game. Yeah. Like when you have someone just standing there going, ah, help me, and then you, like, kill the alien or whatever, and he's like, ah, thank you, friend, and then just disappear. (laughs) Like, I expected him to, like, fade away, and you get, like, 20 points. It felt like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I had a lot better memories of this scene in my head. And then when it came to watching it again now, I just thought, oh, actually, that that wasn't great. I I can see where you're coming from. It's if you try and take this as a serious action scene. And to be fair, this is like the biggest action scene we've had so far. And it's actually one of the bigger action film uh, scenes in the film. There are bigger ones later on that we'll get to. But this is actually the big first gunfight that we have in this film. And from that standpoint, it's, it's, it's a pretty big letdown. But in terms of just being like this chaotic mess, I do... I do somewhat enjoy it still, um, but it's definitely one you can't take seriously. There's no interesting dynamics going on with the gunfight. There's no good, like, uh, what's that word? Uh, are you trying to set up two people fighting? Uh, conflict? No, no, when you, like, telegraph it, like, act it. Uh... <laughs> Never mind, but th- there's no good, like, setup in fights. Like, there's nothing kind of that good here it's just chaos and i do quite enjoy the chaos but you can't take it kind of seriously in any way Um, but again but like with all these bond films it's kind of up to you personally whether you can get into it whether this is too far or not far enough but it's actually not like it's not too far in the same way as trying to think of an example like something in a roger moore film have which would be very silly and and like the laser fights in, in moonraker that that just goes so stupid I can I can appreciate it. Whereas this, it's like I have a feeling it was still meant to be quite impressive. With I didn't think there was any like stunt wise, nothing stood out to me. Being like, wow, that's cool. It was just people bumbling around and fires, and I just yeah, wasn't great to me. Yeah, but I do think about this scene overall because the parallels for Doctor No are quite strong, and obviously nothing like this happens in Doctor No. But we talked about that film how. You know, the whole idea with Bond at that time was he gets to see all these exotic, unique places and some of it is supposed to be kind of showing off and people kind of being impressed by that. I do feel like this scene, or at least the first half of it before it kind of all kicks off and fighting breaks out, I want to say it's supposed to be doing the same thing just for Istanbul. Like, it's supposed to be like, look at these gypsies and their crazy way of life. And in the cinema, you're going to be like, oh, goodness, I, I can't even imagine such a way of living. These guys are crazy. <laughs> I feel like it's supposed to kind of be like that, especially because Bond and uh, Bay are like the only people in suits as well. It, it had somewhat of a similar feel uh, to me. Yeah. Yeah, That that's a good point. That's a good point. Didn't work for me. And we did forget to say that uh, Karen Bay does get shot although not really a massive deal in the end. I think his arm is magically healed <laughs> like two scenes later. Yeah. But also just briefly until, before we go on to the next bit, it has to be mentioned when the girls are fighting or the women are fighting each other, they literally act like cats. Um, yeah. Like actually stretching their hands out and pouncing at each other. And it's very bizarre. Yeah. I It is weird. I, I just don't... 
I guess it's it was included. I I kind of want to say maybe like for the just to have more women on screen, kind of like you were saying earlier, where it's like, oh, it's a Bond film. We need to have more women on on the on the, on the screen, but because it, it it wasn't, it, it was just weird. It it wasn't like a cool fight or anything. Just strange. Yeah, I my note was: is this meant to be sexy or intense? Because I couldn't yeah. I couldn't figure it out. Because obviously, like they they're not really even wearing that much, and obviously, catfight you know it has that uh, stigma behind it. But the music is actually quite intense when they're kind of fighting each other. So I I really don't know what they were going for there. Yeah, me neither. Uh, then this whole uh, segment kind of ends with the two women are grateful for Bond, and now they're yours to decide what to do with. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so once again, it's just Bond laying down. What I think one of them's sewing his sleeve, and the other one, I don't know, feeding him or something. I can't remember, but just another kind of like, okay, right, let's <laughs> just move on. Yeah, I don't know if the implication is that he actually slept with them both, but it seems like that's what they were going for, and it's just really kind of unnecessary, especially how they were fighting each other earlier. It's just it, again, it goes into how this is actually probably pretty offensive. Um, but also in terms of the film itself, even putting that that bit aside, it's just very bizarre. It doesn't feel like Bond being cool and kind of you know getting meeting a woman and seducing her. It's just like these two women who are fighting each other are like, "Yay, Bond! Let's do his nails." It's just I don't I don't get it. Yeah, well, I will say we we go on we go from that whole gypsy camp scene, which I didn't love, to a scene that I actually think was really good and. And I kind of forgot about to an extent, um, which is where uh, Karen Bay wants his revenge on uh, Krilenko. Keep forgetting his name. So um, it's sort of like the assassination of that character. And it's all, it's not a very long scene. Um, It's basically just them waiting outside of a building. I think think they're Karen Bay's sons who are dressed up as policemen. Yeah, if it's on. an extra character that's helping out, it's one of his sons. It's one of his sons, yeah, which I, I quite like that. Um, they go and knock on Krolenko's door to sort of force him to use the escape hatch, which just so happens to be the side of this massive billboard. Funnily enough, did you know, I read this, um, that is a real film that was produced by uh, MGM. Oh, okay. I didn't know that, but it, it makes sense. Yeah, I might was it MGM or it might have been Eon? But... Um, yeah, and like the character on there, I can't remember what the film's called now, but it was a, sort of a bit of a nod to another film they had out, which is kind of cool. Um, huh. Yeah, so uh, he escapes out of where the mouth is on this big old billboard, and uh, Karen Bay and Bond are there, and Bond lets Karen take the shot with his um, with his sniper rifle that was in his uh, Q briefing scene. And I think, as I say, very simple, very simple scene. But the thing that stood out to me is just it had quite a good amount of tension to it. And I really liked the lighting with the 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 grate, like the window with the, the crisscross pattern on it. I just thought it looked a little bit artsy to me. It looked a little bit nice, especially coming from the scene before with the, the camp on fire and everything. Yeah, it's nice to have this quiet scene. And I I put down the exact same thing. I, I feel like with Dr. No... 
it never really got that tense for me. And I like the atmosphere of Dr. No and how that film plays out and all the things it puts in there. I think it is still effective what it does. But this film in general, despite having the higher budget, it still, I would say, has a lot more tension with scenes like this. Even mm. though you have the chaotic one, this one, I would say this scene is more tense than anything we ever saw in kind of Dr. No. And it just kind of proves how effective this scene was for such, something so simple. They just go to a billboard they get the sniper rifle, they set it up, they get the guy out and he shoots him. And that's that. But it, again, there is a really nice tension and build up here. And it had a great line as well. Should, it's the first joke it. that makes sense <laughs> from James I Bond. Need, I knew you were going to say something about that. <laughs> because none of them in the last film made sense. They were just like vague references to it. But this was a proper joke that actually made sense in context. And I was like, I knew that you had it in there, James. I knew this was coming. It's it's nice to see them actually like be able to write a joke. <laughs> wow, high praise there, high praise. Yeah, yeah. She should have kept her mouth shut. So nice and simple. But as you say, it works. It works. It makes sense. That's all I want. I'm I didn't laugh at it. I don't think it's a good joke. I don't think it's funny. There's a lot of films about this film, or a lot of moments in this film and Doctor No that makes me laugh, but these lines don't make me laugh. I just enjoy them, and I just like it when they make sense, and this one finally did. I think for me, it had a brief, like a small exhale from my nose reaction, about that level. Wow. that I get, You say high praise, but you're just coming out with this. <laughs> yeah, I, it gets better at least, doesn't it? I suppose it gets better. Do you want to know what happens next, Joe? Go on, him. James Bond travels somewhere, and the James Bond theme plays over the top of it. You're joking. I know. Mixing it up. Where does he travel to? The hotel. Ah, yes. <laughs> and he orders oh, breakfast. <laughs> I did write about this, actually, about the specifically the breakfast thing, because I did like how it, it was very... Um, it was very literary Bond to me. Ian Fleming was obsessed with writing about Bond's food uh, and his drink, obviously, but food particularly, and yeah, especially breakfast, different types of eggs or whatever, or I think in this case it was figs um, and, and strong black coffee. And I just thought like, yeah, that's kind of nice. You know, they are keeping that that element of Bond's fancy fancy breakfast that no one no one watching the film would ever you know who's who has figs for breakfast i mean really but um you know bond does i'm surprised he didn't order a martini like that was the shocking thing <laughs> he ordered actual food this time at the hotel maybe a bloody mary yeah he probably did probably got that later yeah but i really like that he was checking the briefcase and i also like that again it's nice that they show it again but this kind of idea of Bond having countermeasures to people trying to go after him and look at his stuff. It's it's straight from Dr. No. It's just kind of an evolved version of it where before it was a hair and some powder, but this time it's him checking for bugs and having this briefcase. So it's another strong tie to that film, but you get that clear sense of progression with the briefcase, which I thought was quite nice. Yeah. As you say, the more you see it in the film, the more it the more it pays off. Absolutely. And then we get another small towel. I don't think it was a, <laughs> a small towel as the first one, but we do get uh, Sean Connery in a small towel. We do. And a, and a bath that steams instantly. I could not believe how much steam came from that bath <laughs> within seconds. 
They have some hot water there in Istanbul. Oh, yeah. So this was a little bit surprising. So this is when uh, Tanya finally reveals herself and you see Bond kind of looking and seeing her getting to bed. But she was like completely naked, right? And they like barely hide it at all. You just see it through like a filter. But I was like, that's actually quite surprising to see. I know James Bond is like all about ah sexy women not wearing much. But this is, as far as I can tell, just straight up a naked woman just getting into into bed. And they barely censor it or hide it at all. I'm going to be honest. I did pause to double check this. Not for research being a cre- purposes. For research. Yeah. I'm not a creep. I promise you. Because no. I was kind of a bit taken aback like that. Like you were just saying. I, I thought, am I seeing that? Maybe she's just got underwear on. But no, she is like, there is a bottom on display. <laughs> I mean, I'm is... assuming that's how they get away with it. Because even then, these old Bond films are like PGs. Um for people who don't know what I'm talking about, if you're not English, basically PG is parental guidance, so it's the one below 12 in the UK, so it's a lower than a 12. I don't know about this film in particular, but normally these old James Bond films are lower than a 12, so apparently they don't consider it proper nudity, even though it's like just straight up a naked woman getting into bed. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as you say, there's a sort of black filter of the window or whatever, the door, whatever it is, but... You can see it quite clearly if you if you try. So um, that was a bit like, oh, okay. And I, I come to think of it, there are a couple times as well in other films where if you were to freeze frame at a particular moment, they they get away with a fair amount. Yeah, it's just surprising. That's it. You know, obviously Bond, this is part of his thing. It was just quite surprising to see this like so blatantly. I can't imagine there's any other as blatant example as this in any of the other films. Yeah, but the scene itself where Bond yeah, walks in and finds Tanya in the bed, um, i got to be honest, I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't like this scene. And in fact, I think this is the start of me just not really liking the character of Tanya at all, really. Um, I think the thing that really I don't like is that, yeah, so she's, she's a Russian, she's, she works for Russia, she's Russian, um, and she's being in, involved in this plot about pretending to fall in love with Bond and um, defect. And the thing that I think kind of throws me, maybe she's just a, like, she's just really good at her job. But as an audience, I don't think we really ever see any sort of side of her that's like feeling uncomfortable about this or that maybe she's having second thoughts about it or, or maybe thinking about the bigger picture. Like she just does what she's told and pretends to love James Bond. And to me, it just made it feel like just not a very complex character. I completely agree. It seems like they laid the foundation for her to be a more complex character because she's being deceived, but she's loyal to Mother Russia or the Soviet Union or whatever, but she's being deceived. And there's perhaps some sort of payoff that might happen with that. And that could be quite interesting because clearly she has some type of a personality because she's like dedicated to this to the point where she would do this super secret mission and pretend to be in love with James Bond. And that's quite interesting. And then you could, even if you go down the standard route of, oh, then she actually does fall in love with James Bond, which I think happens. It's not mm. particularly clear. Yeah. Um, there, There is kind of potential there. But like you say, I don't know if it was the way the character was written or if this actress just wasn't very good or maybe she was too good i can figure it out it's one of the two (laughs) 
but she always comes across and it's similar to me as kind of Honey Rider a little bit where she always just comes out as kind of dumb. Like she never kind of, you don't see that other side of her enough to make her, like you say, be a complex and interesting character. She just kind of goes along for the ride and just seems quite stupid. And again, there's a plot reason why she's acting stupid, but it just doesn't, you don't get any payoff to it. She's just kind of dumb throughout this film. Which is a shame because when we first see her, when she's getting briefed by by Cleb, I think, like you say, I think she was set up to be a bit more nuanced um, and it just doesn't really go anywhere. No, yeah. Like, it feels like it would have been quite easy to do a payoff to it later in the film. I don't know if they cut that out because the second half of the film is more action-oriented, but for the ending to kind of make sense with uh, Tanya and Bond getting together, you need that extra little bit. And without that extra little bit, it just doesn't work. And a lot of the time Tanya's on screen, she's fine. It's just, that's it. There's, she doesn't really add enough to this film. No. And in uh, in in the hotel room, surprise, surprise, uh, they make love and there is the hidden the hidden uh, camera which i think thinking back to it now that must have been one of the references in die another day because it's the exact same thing but also um yeah they're being filmed um which is kind of called back on later on in the film but really not that much um so i was just when i was watching i was like oh okay they're being filmed and then that's obviously where the scene ends and it just moves on a bit strange yeah i did like that little touch just because of how creepy it is and it makes Spectre feel so creepy and weird like it separates them from the Russians and things like that to the fact that they would actually do this I don't know why they're doing this and I still don't know why they really did it but it's very kind of creepy and unsettling so I think that's kind of effective and it also kind of reminds you of yes Spectre is pulling the strings here and in control so I think it is effective in terms of helping set up Spectre and, and carry on that thread and what they are to this film but yeah, it's just a little bit unsettling and odd uh, when you first see it. So does that mean if that... Yeah, so that, that is Spectre recording them. So does that mean that it was also Spectre who had bugged the phone in his other room? And so does that mean that the people working downstairs and the guy on the phone telling him about the bridal suite, they're also in on it with Spectre? I mean, that's the only way this makes sense, right? I can't mm. think of another way they would be able to set it up. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I never really kind of connected the dots that far, which which I think says something more about me than the film, but yeah. I mean, they don't linger on it because I'm the same. It, what, what you're saying totally makes sense, but it makes sense that the manager would be linked up to Spectre because that's the only way Spectre would be able to set that thing up. So yeah. it makes sense that the manager would then tell Bond, you know, they blatantly bug his room and it makes sense that he would say, you can only have the bridal one because that's where the setup is. So there is like logic there, but I don't think the film really kind of gives you time to put that together in a way where you would think about it and say, oh, okay, that's that's what this plan is. Right. Thank you for making me feel not so stupid. I have one other question though about this scene, because it's a callback to an earlier one. There is a scar at the bottom of Bond's back that both women touch. Do, do you know what that scar is? I, I didn't really put much thought into it. Is it meant to be a scar from Dr. No? I would assume so. But when did he get shot on his lower back? Or like damaged on his lower back? I'm not too sure when that happened. I'm not sure. 
I suppose I just sort of assumed it was maybe just, you know, in one of his assignments. But then we didn't see it in Dr. No. No, it's like, so... why have it? Like, if it didn't come from Dr. No, why have it? Because they focus on it. You see it twice. There are two scenes where they kind of focus on it and call it out. And she, t- I mean, I guess she does touch it to say, oh, I know that's you. It's just, it seems like they would have tied that to Dr. No, because there's so many things in this film that does tie back to Dr. No. Um, so I guess there is a plot reason of Tanya knowing the scar is there and touching it. But still, it, it seems like it should have tied back to that first film somehow. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I don't know, I'm trying to think of what would have been a good a good time to sort of call it back to in the film. But I'm sure there's something. This next scene confused me quite a bit. So this is the scene where it's... I don't know what you would describe this area as. At first I thought it was a cathedral, but I don't think it is. I think it's just kind of a a very big open space with these nice pillars and architecture. Maybe it is a cathedral. I can't think what else it would be. Oh, it's... I looked this up because I wondered myself. Um, It's a a mosque. I don't know. I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong probably, but like Hagia Mosque or something. Okay. Hagia Mosque. Yeah, one of the like a big landmark in Istanbul. Yeah, it felt quite religious, but yeah, obviously, yeah, if it's not Christian, then that makes sense. So this scene confused me quite a bit because we have Bond, we have Tanya, we have uh, I forgot his name, the the Asian guy, and then we have a Russian person who has been following Bond this whole time, and I don't quite get what the plan was for this scene because Bond and Tanya slept together, but I'm pretty sure Tanya is trying to give Bond the map to where the the machine is that he's trying to get in the, the Russian embassy. But she puts it down and then a Russian man comes and then the agent guy kills him and then Bond shows up and takes it and says, that's weird, there's a dead Russian guy. And then that's that. But I don't understand why Tanya can't just go up to Bond and say, well, here's the thing that you want. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. I don't know either. I really don't. I, I know that there's like a sort of effort to show that they shouldn't be seen together too much. Um, later on as well, they do that. But why do they have to go to a big public space and put it down behind a pillar? I don't know. I really don't. I think it was a cool scene in, in so much as, again, showing Grant being one step ahead of Bond um, and making Bond look kind of just sort of happy-go-lucky like oh oh, someone died it's that's lucky um but maybe they just wanted to show off more of istanbul i don't know it definitely felt like that like it don't felt like let's show off this we're in istanbul there's a really cool location we you know we want another scene where we can set up uh set things up for the future um and it felt like that's all it kind of was there was some nice kind of tension and things in there though because you have a tour guide giving someone around so as all these kind of agents and people with guns or dangerous people are kind of moving around and all these different pieces you hear this echo of this tour guide and as the scene goes on it gets kind of quieter and quieter and because it's getting quieter you know it's kind of heading towards something so again it's really kind of smart filmmaking from that sense which is something i said before i think this film does tension a lot better than the last film and i think this is another example of that it just kind of feels like this scene in the grand story in the grand scheme of things it could have been kind of cut out because it's just like she just has to or in terms of the logic of the film she just has to get bond a map that she could just do normally you would imagine because she broke into the hotel room so if she could do that then why couldn't she get him the map 
Um, but I think this scene by itself is still quite effective and, and it's still quite enjoyable. Yeah, uh, and it, it helps. It's something that's quite funny, really, if you think about the Bond character and what he eventually becomes in some of the films, which is basically this amazing supernatural sometimes man that could do everything and never get injured and never do anything wrong the actual series if you think of dr no and this one there's a lot of times where bond is is not he's not infallible he he maybe not making mistakes but he's not he's not on it in the same way like in this scene where there is that that weird russian character that's also there which bond didn't know about and it was only because of grant that he ends up getting the plans to the the consulate and i just really like that they they put this effort towards giving bond a bit of a weakness yeah and it's not bond being stupid or dumb as i said before it's just this other person seems to be kind of better than him and there's just so much kind of going on and this is just kind of how it all kind of pays off it, like you say it just works really well they get that balance right uh, in this film yeah so then he picks up the little thing which has the consulate blueprints, the floor plans on it. So then he knows where to steal the lecture from. Um, and I think after that, we then move on to, are they on the boat after that? Yes. Yeah. Which again, is just a bit more of them sneakily talking to each other, not trying to look too obvious. Don't know why they have to be on a boat in that case, but anyway. <laughs> and Bond has uh, a little sort of recording camera gadget. Uh, and is just sort of getting more information about the lector from um, Tanya. And I actually, I mean, the scene itself, fine. Nothing too special, really. Again, you're just seeing nice backdrops of Istanbul, which is very, very nice scenery. But um, we do have a, a quick interlude of um, back in London, back in Em's office with everyone listening in to what she's saying. And uh, a nice little gag with, M in Tokyo with Bond, which I thought was really good. Yeah, I actually quite like this scene. It's it's again, it's not one that really cracked me off and made me laugh. But similar to how we had certain moments in Doctor No that was purely a comedy scene and purely supposed to be comedic. This is probably the most comedy focused scene in the entire film because it's quite silly them being on this boat and then them cutting to M and everyone kind of listening and then Tanya saying like kind of inappropriate things <laughs> although to be fair it did make me laugh when she was like will you make love to me back on England and then Sean Connery's delivery of the next line day and night like he just says it instantly <laughs> and then gets back to what he's saying like the comedic delivery is actually surprisingly really good and that line in particular did did make me laugh <laughs> yeah it's it's a good it's a good little scene for that i just think them actually on on the boat something else that threw me off i think is just how obvious it was that they were just not in the same scene together you could see that i think the character of tanya was probably well, it looked like she was actually there Whereas with Bond, it was clearly pickup shots with a with a kind of projection, and it just and also his shots seemed a lot lower quality. I don't know what was going on with the film, but they it just didn't work back and forth. It, to me, it was just a bit too um, too uh, too different. I noticed that as well. I put blurry, but it wasn't really blurry. It was just low quality. Just mm. the the shots where it was just Sean Connery zoomed in just seemed worse, and it's, it was just very odd, especially when you're on a bigger TV when it jumps between the two because there's such a clear difference there. Yeah, 
So after all that, we finally get to what I'm going to call the heist, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, you don't see a massive amount of planning into actually getting this done. You more just kind of see it all kind of execute, which I think works well. Um, you know, Bond isn't, it's not Ocean's Eleven or anything like that. You just kind of want everything to kind of go off. But something I do kind of really like, the a small detail that is easy to miss, where they talk about what day are we going to do this? What day are we going to break in and steal the, the machine? And they're like, the 13th? It's like, no, we should say the 14th. And then when he does kind of break in and eventually meet up with Tanya, she's like, but it's the 13th. So actually Bond very purposely deceives her by saying it's going to be the 14th that we're going to do this thing, but they do it a day early just to, I guess, make sure she's okay or kind of, you know, she's no, it's happening. She just doesn't know it's that day. So I guess if it is a trap, which we know they think it is a trap, that's them somewhat trying to make sure everything's all right by doing it a day early. Yeah, it's a very easy detail to miss. I think I might have rewound and, and kind of listened to it back um, when Bond's talking to Karen Bay and he says about the date. Because you're right, like it makes a ton of sense why they would do that. And it's quite a clever thing. But it's literally like you could blink and miss that if you weren't really paying attention. Yeah, but it's nice for those people who do kind of pick up on it. It doesn't have a big impact, but it's kind of a nice little detail. And again, it makes Bond seem smart and competent which is something you spoke about in the last one where it's nice to see bond thinking things through and making kind of smart choices when he's uh coming up with these ideas yeah so bond heads into the um russian consulate uh and sort of has a i guess a bit of a gag above the clock and is the time right on the clock matching up to 3 p.m when um when the explosives underneath which was kind of like, okay, yeah, that was set up quite nicely because we saw them spy on it previously, so we know that there is those tunnels underneath. Um, that blows up, which sort of just creates general chaos again, kind of like the gypsy camp yeah. scene, people running around like headless chickens, um, and that gives Bond the chance to head into the room and, and grab the lector. Yeah, again, it's all very simple. It's Oh, God. I mean, I don't have too much to say about this actual scene, but when they go back into the sewers, because oh, you have the rats... And I wouldn't say I'm afraid of rats, but I don't I don't like rats. I'm not a fan of rats. Uh, Ratatouille, not my favorite Pixar film uh, for me. It's a bit <laughs> overrated. And we get this very dis- somewhat disconnected shot because the whole point here is that they're in the sewers for a lot of this. So they're able to get around Istanbul through the sewers and be sneaky. So their plan is to go off through the sewers, set off this bomb, steal it, and then escape through the sewers um, after they set off tear gas in it. But when they go back down and they turn like round the corner to escape, there's this like, what's the term? Not a horde of rats, but a pack of rats. And it's so many rats. And the sound of them, just like these other sound effects, it's really loud. And it sounded like angry high-pitched rain because there's just so many insane, like there's just an insane amount of rats there. And even though they don't really react too much to me, I was like, oh God, what? Why is there so many rats? That's That's horrible. I don't like this. It was a little bit weird. I think the thing that sort of lessened the impact for me is that it was so clearly a different shot and it was it just didn't match the 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 scenes before it. But um it, yeah, it it was it was good. I did really like the music of I think it was the same music as the was it the same music as the other? It's like that that kind of very generic actiony bond music. So not during... the the gypsy camp vibe music. You're saying a different one. I think it's a different one. 
I think I should have. Yeah, I just put <laughs> just put great music in my notes, but maybe I should have <laughs> put a little bit more. I mean, I can't think of it exactly, but I do kind of agree with the general sentiment of overall in this film. It has great music. I don't think there's anything that's really bad. And actually, they use music a lot more in this film than Doctor No, and to kind of great effect so yeah again unfortunately I, I can't quite remember what plays there but i do know throughout this music it's it's really solid this was just a little point where i was saying about uh karen bay's arm like he's climbing upstairs no problem now he was shot with <laughs> he was shot in the arm like two days ago and it's fine yeah i guess you would somewhat assume there's like time skips going on here they don't say that they don't make that clear and no one ever says, oh, we'll do it in a month's time. But I, I get the kind of general impression is that, again, they're trying to take the book and condense it down and have everything that happens in the book. So watching this film, it feels like it takes place after like two, three days. But it probably does take place over the course of a month of Bond exploring Istanbul, getting familiar with everything, and then talking to them, setting up this plan, setting a date for the plan, then executing the plan to steal it, then escaping. Uh, I would I take that as probably taking over... A much longer period of time than what's presented in this film tom that's far too sensible i'm oh, very sorry how dare you i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah it's like the lord of the rings thing right they give the it actually takes place over like months and years but they just give the impression of it's very short in order to keep up the pacing of the film and to make it feel like it's continually moving forward yeah it would have been a bit weird if we had Five months later as a title card. (laughs) So we're finally here. We're finally at this moment. Now, in my head, I have the train section being halfway in the film. But looking at my notes, there's no way that's the case. We must be, what, like two thirds through it? Yes, I would. I think it's pretty much bang on two thirds, it looks like, for my notes. So, yeah. So they eventually, after, like straight away after escaping from the sewers, they all run and grab this train. And we see... A Russian guy get on the train, and we also see I, I can't remember what's the agent guy's name again. Grant. It just says blonde man in my notes. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, Grant. Grant, yes. Uh, and then we just see Grant uh, get on the train. So it, it's a really nice setup. When I saw this train scene, I saw them all get in. It made me excited. I actually couldn't remember what happens on the train, but I was like, it's the train. It's the train from from Russia with Love. I was just like excited to see where this kind of goes but in that moment i actually couldn't remember what happens on the train at all i the thing i wrote down here and it's just so true it's just bond films with train scenes in them it's just something about it it just feels right and especially when you have these sort of like old trains of the little cabins and everything and the dining cars it's oh i love it i absolutely love it i just love the whole vibe of of train scenes and it kind of extends into like when there's like train levels in the video games of them i love that too everything about it i'm i'm so set up to be an old man and love trains not just because of bond but that does help well not some british trains it's very they're quite different some of those (laughs) yeah it has to be like the orient express or something maybe (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it's just such a smart way of doing it because there's like this tension with everyone being stuck in a small place, but also having that place move at a high speed. I feel like kind of um, like there's a instinctual sense of kind of dread that comes with that. Imagine being trapped on somewhere that's so kind of big, but also feels small, but also going quite fast. Because this is one of those kind of old trains where everyone has their own sort of 
little area or cabin and things like that and then the outside corridor is really small and thin which i think it just is a really effective space in terms of trying to make up a tension or, or create tension in a scene because you can't really get out or escape and yes maybe you have your own little area but you're kind of trapped in that area and it's something that the film uses to great effect later on in in a fight scene it yeah that is absolutely spot on because one thing i noticed with this is um just the amount of times that they have the characters stop when people walk past and and like a definite effort to make it look like it is cramped it's busy there's people walking past they have to stop talking about something because there's someone nearby or it's a like a a waiter or something like that it's all these little bits that come together like you say to just have this sort of feeling of eventually that feeling of like dread but but yeah just that it there's something that's going to happen on this train something's going to happen yeah all the pieces are in place and you're just waiting for it to all kind of go off which is a great feeling for these sort of films yeah so we have another scene with tanya so tanya and bond are hanging out in the cabin and she's still doing that i'm in love with you routine and just swooning and she puts on her dress and i just put her dress is stupid because i was like what a stupid dress whoa I really didn't like this scene at all. <laughs> I tell you what I didn't like, and it's something I had been noticing up until this point, but it was this bit that made me actually think, oh yeah, I've got to write this down. Because it's a bit of like, it's a bit of a cliche and a bit of a joke to do an impression of Sean Connery now and, and just go, yeah. Just, go on. Just no, go, go on. Like, Let's do it. Yeah. But but he does go, he does go <laughs> yes very creepily a lot of times in this film. Yeah, I mean a lot of times, and it's just a little bit like just kind of makes makes me just the way he does it. But um, how does he do it again? Yeah, (laughs) but this is one of those scenes. Are you going on five? Hey, I could do some extra income. Um, I would agree. I mean, at this point, they're meant to be in sort of disguise as husband and wife, um, Mister and Missus Somerset, or something like that, heading back to England, but um this is what i mean by like the character to me is just too far gone the the character of of tanya where it's just at this point she's really just kind of not adding much to me no she's just acting like a teenager it's somewhat what i have problems with with honey rider which i've already said and in that episode we talked about is she of age how old is she now we know tanya is of age because she works for you know she's a russian industry or things like that so we we know that's okay but she does just act like a stupid teenager even if you're someone in love with someone you wouldn't act like this you wouldn't be like oh james james do you like my dress james it's just it just doesn't work um i mean i guess grand scheme of things it's a small part of the film it's just the wasted kind of opportunity and maybe it's the dubbing you mentioned last time about the dubbing and actually this woman uh, or this actress was also mm-hmm. dubbed for this yeah. film and it was actually quite noticeable for me uh, in this film which also again doesn't help with the character yeah yeah another character dubbed i think um i think for me as well is like is, is it now meant to be the point where she really is falling in love with James. I know we did say earlier that is there that that point does happen at somewhere in the film, but if it's now and this is like genuine love and it's she's not doing an act, it's still it's just not it's not clear and it's kind of a bit 
yeah, a little bit silly, a little bit cringy. Yeah, I don't think it's now because she acts very um, like sad and disconnected when they're at the dinner scene later. So I think it's meant to be after that. I did not. But even then, it's not clear. I did not. I know we're kind of jumping ahead a bit, but I did not understand why she was like that then. Was there a reasoning for that? Let me... Uh, well, I put in my notes, Bond gives the woman a good shake and slap, so that might be... Oh, might be some of right. It. right. Again, it's another slap with a great loud slap sound. It's not very nice seeing, but still, uh, how loud that slap is, uh, I enjoyed. That's right. I suppose, yeah, we are jumping ahead a little bit, but um, on the train, Karen Bay's there. The Russian guy that saw them at the train station's there. And um, we sort of leave them two characters together because we've got to wait until 6 p.m. or something like that before they can escape. So Karen Bay looks after that guy and makes sure there's no trouble with him. Um, and then, what do you know? He dies. Both die. Shocking. It's such a shame, like, with the, well, it, it's a great scene and kind of great moment, but you get such a funny moment with Bay where they, like, he was like, I'll keep our friend company. And then they do the old pull the jacket down the side, had stuff his face. And then he just has the gun. And I want to say get the cigarette out because we haven't spoken about it, but this is another film where everyone is just smoking the entire <laughs> yeah. time. It's just what you do. Yeah. Um, but then he just sits down saying, oh, I have a very good life story for you. You see, it all started. <laughs> it's such a great little moment. And it kind of, I think it's smart because you get this funny, nice character kind of moment with him that you enjoy but of course the very next time you see him it turns out that they've both been killed and it kind of makes it hit a little bit more uh similar to quarrel we were just like oh man, that's a bummer i really like that guy yeah they did a really good job with that character i think of karen bay um where he just yeah yeah when you do see him eventually stabbed with a knife in his back you just think oh no not why now like you kind of want him to be in the rest of the film which is always a good sign didn't sort of outstay his welcome or anything so um yeah they they both end up discovered killed and um that's when bond as you say goes back and uh gets slap happy with tanya yeah so he basically tries to say like i know this is an act which is another interesting thing about this film and they did this in dr no to a certain extent as well you can't you don't really know when bond is pretending to go along with something or when he simply doesn't know that there's something else going on. Now, you know, to a certain degree, their stuff is missing because he doesn't know who's trying to save him and he doesn't know about Spectre, as we find out later, or anything like that. But it's sometimes like you don't know when Bond knows when she's faking it, although they do know that it's a trap. So I'd assume he always kind of knows. But that's the question. Like, that's what I think is quite interesting about the character, or at least how Sean Connery plays him. Sometimes he can feel like a little bit dumb, but then later there's a small moment where you're like, actually, no, he, he kind of knew the whole time. And they kind of play with your expectations to the point where you don't know what Bond knows. You just know he's somewhat capable, so he probably knows some of this stuff. Yeah, I suppose so. Sort of like, <laughs> it reminds me of that bit in Friends where it's like, they don't know that we know that they know that we know. So <laughs> you sort of sometimes yeah. have to read it back and think, okay, so he's... He's yelling at Tanya because he's aware that it's a trap. It's like, okay, so he did, yeah, it is a trap. But then, uh, I've already lost my own train of thought. <laughs> See, I can't keep up with it. 
Yeah, and I think that's the whole point. You're not really meant to... You could think about it to the point where you can probably roughly figure it out when Bond knows stuff and when he doesn't know stuff. But it's actually a really smart device in a spy film like this where actually you're not fully aligned with Bond and it kind of gives a nice kind of uh, tension to certain scenes and things like that and having Bond kind of be his own character and own perspective. I think it works really well with these films and it's not something I kind of had considered about these films until doing this rewatch. And speaking of tension... We do get what I think when when I thought about this film and and the reasons why I liked it beforehand, there was one very specific shot that was in my head that I remember really liking. Um, as we mentioned, Grant, uh, the Spectre agent, is on the train as well, um, and eventually the train stops where Bond is supposed to meet uh, someone. Uh, what's it called? Station. Station Z or something like that. One of the like, kind of British informants working abroad sort of thing um, to continue the escape back to London. Um, and it's you kind of get, as Bond is, is walking along the platform trying to find his, uh, his informant, you get this really cool shot of Grant walking alongside Bond in the train, sort of going from uh, window to window between, between them and hiding and... It's it's such a cool shot because it's one of the first times I can think of a shot actually being so specifically set up to be sort of artistic and and purposely cinema uh, cinematic, you know, um, which obviously Bond films will have a lot more in the future. But with these early films, a lot of it is very simple camera shots and camera angles. This one really stood out to me. Yeah, it feels fantastic because it ties into throughout this entire film, we have seen Grant always kind of being there, but he's actually been quite distant and we know that he's on the train. But even with him being on the train, you don't really see him all that much up to this point. You just kind of know he's there. And also, you know that he he's killed Bay and the Russian guy because, you know, who else would do it? I don't think they specifically say, but there's like, of course he did it. But this is kind of the first time where you see him as close as that. And it kind of also kind of foreshadows the fact that they are going to meet soon because throughout this film, he's kind of been getting closer to closer and seeing him be that close, you're like, okay, this is starting to go down. So as well as kind of looking like a fantastic sort of scene, the build up to this scene is also very important. And it also sets up the next section with Grant very nicely. It does. Yeah, because you do eventually see him sort of looming in the background once Bond has done his, I think it's one of Karen Bay's sons he's talking to. Um, and kind of giving me the news about oh wait hang on I'm getting mixed up because I I was t- talking about his informant which one's first is it meeting his son or meeting the other guy the I'm not too sure because I think the Grant gets off the train first no he can't do because Sean Connery's off the train first I do they stop twice I think they stop twice yeah because one of the times yeah I think they stop wants to meet the sun and that's where we get the shot with grant going through the train and then we get another nighttime scene where they stop again and that's when grant gets off first yeah because this first time where he's bond is talking to karen bay's son um who was meant to be meeting them there and everything that's when you kind of realize that grant is watching to learn of the code that that was referenced right at the beginning of the film at the airport with the whole Need a cig- uh, need a lighter or a match, and a lighter's far better. That sort of line that it does, um, and it's only because he's there watching them that he knows how to use that for the next time they stop the train um, and basically take the the skies of uh, the uh, English 
agent. Yeah, because the whole point in this film now is that it's they have the the codex, whatever it is, and they're purely trying to get back, which also is quite nice because it simplifies the film massively. Like there's all these little kind of things going on, but uh, Bay has been killed and stuff, so the characters are quite limited. So it's actually quite a simple setup, but they add all these little kind of ways of building the tension and having all these kind of payoffs that is really smart. So we get this next scene where it's uh, in Zagreb in Croatia, I believe. It, it shows footage of the train and then it has a faded in version of a map. And most of that stuff, I was like, what am I even looking <laughs> yeah. at? But I've been to Zagreb. So I was like, ah, I know where that is. That's Croatia. So I knew that at the very I least. just assumed that most of the name the, the names I was seeing on that map, it's like they're not called that anymore. I just, <laughs> I just thought that was... That's a good point. Yeah, it might not have even been Croatia at that point. <laughs> I have no clue. Uh, but I also really like how simple this is. They don't fully explain what's happening, but basically... Uh, Grant gets off the train very quickly and then gets into his disguise, which is really just him, basically, uh, in his full suit, because this whole time he's still been in the full suit, and then gets onto the train pretending that he was already there. It's it's very basic, but again, it's a, it's one of those films, things that these early films do very well, where it's just people kind of being smart and just having kind of good ideas and kind of framing that in a good way to try and trick each other and i kind of really appreciated that this simple wrinkle to this game yeah oh yeah it just goes to show that he's he's uh just as good a an agent as bond he's he's able to identify all the things that all the the codes and everything can go and take um go and take the appearance of uh the english agent sneak back on the train well actually no that then he goes up to bond doesn't he and does the whole need a need a light sort of thing yes and that's that's what gets him on the train into the next scene of of pretending to be english so now we finally get to this bit where they're they've met up uh grant is now captain nash well that's who he's pretending to be mm-hmm. and we get a, a wonderful performance i think we can all say i really wasn't sure whether the actor who played grant was english and <laughs> just because like it's such a such a bad English accent. I thought, well, is it because he's English and able to do a really bad English accent? Or is it because the actor is actually not English and therefore the English accent is bad, sort of just as a byproduct? Turns out he is actually English. Um, but yeah, he has this really sort of, it's just like kind of grating accent, I thought, which oh, is good. No, it worked for the character. I loved it. It's, it's so over the top and silly. I just couldn't help but be like, yes, this is what I want. Why doesn't Bond speak <laughs> like this? <laughs> I think it worked in the context of the film, being that this is a... I don't know if we ever know what... Is he Russian? I don't know. I believe they said he's Bulgarian. Bulgarian? Oh, okay. I missed that. Like at the very start of the film when they're talking about him, I think they tell number three is Bulgarian. So I kind of like that, yeah. He's going to be putting on an accent, but he might have ham it up a bit because he doesn't quite know where the line is. I don't know. But it does make for (laughs) quite funny... I just think like having Bond next to this so obviously terrible accent just kind of funny to me i don't know if this is something where a similar to dr no and i can't remember what i was talking about here where they oh no it was the the professor in the last film where his acting is so over the top and hammy it Mm. kind of tells the audience that bob knows this is no good and that he's lying like it kind of gives us what the character is thinking i do kind of wonder if they were trying for the same thing where well obviously bond would know that's not a his british accent is kind of nonsense so this was their way of hamming it up to tell the audience that bond is not 
at least 100% forward that Bond probably does know something is up. Again, just trying to make sure that Bond doesn't look stupid in these situations. Because if you were to believe that Bond 100% believes all of this, then yes, he does look a bit bit silly. I mean, I would argue that Bond does still look a bit silly at the end of this. Well, at the end of the train scene. But um, it's a good scene, so it's fine. Uh, but yeah, him, um, Tanya and, and Nash uh, go off to dinner. And um, Nash, not so subtly, <laughs> drugs Tanya with the biggest pill <laughs> I've seen. <laughs> for <laughs> it's, I get it; it's for the film. The audience needs to see, but it's like, and, and obviously Bond does eventually. You see, you work out that Bond saw as well. But yeah, he um, he drugs uh, Tanya so that she's out of the picture when um, it comes to getting the lecter back. And uh, we enter, I think, what a lot of people would say is probably one of the most iconic scenes of the film if not the most iconic scene yeah i just kind of want to mention though what's the deal with the wine because i think he specifically orders red wine with fish which bond points out to him later saying i should have known ordering red wine with fish which you know bond's absolutely correct there but i wonder if he did he order that to try and hide the pill i don't think he did did he because he puts the pill in the white wine i think it was yeah, you're right. He puts it in in the white wine. I think it was probably a bit of a um, a method to tell the audience that uh, probably probably adding to to Bond realizing that he's not who he says he is because it's like if he was truly a <laughs> like, if he was truly a man of taste and an actual English agent, then he would never have ordered red wine with fish. Yeah, it seems like that it's oh, oh Bond's a pretty a proper British bloke who knows all these rules. It does make us look quite snooty, but I guess it kind of works. Yeah. So after that scene, basically the Tanya is drugged, so she kind of starts passing out, which is an excuse to get her out of the picture because technically Tanya doesn't know about this guy. She still believes that she's working for Russia. She doesn't know about Spectre. She doesn't recognize this person at all. So of course, uh, Captain Nash is, is getting ready to to steal the the machine and take it so they go back to the cabin and i'm trying to remember exactly how this kind of plays out like because he gets the gun out he just like hits him in the back doesn't he just the old karate chop method again there it is again this is what i was saying about how i think this is this is bond actually acting a bit stupid all the other times you're right they've made it so that he's not he's not doing anything wrong it's just grant's doing it better but with this it's like okay bond yeah he he calls out he says why did you why did you drug her and has the gun so he knows that there's something going on right he clearly knows that there's something bad going on and yet he's still like lets grant be like let me just show you this map just come down right here beside me kneel down right next to me (laughs) and then yeah (laughs) he gets out the gun whack on the back and then they're in the position of of like having the fight soon so it's just like that was a bit that just made me think oh like I don't know. I, yeah, I he could have just gun, got but... the gun out, right? Like, yeah. if he pointed a gun at Bond when he's, like, I don't know, walking into the room, that would have been enough. Yeah, totally. But even so, it doesn't kind of spoil what we get next, which is them talking. And I was quite surprised about Bond straight away just says, oh, you're part of Smirsh, aren't you? And then he's like, mm, I don't know. Uh, and then he kind of realizes, <laughs> like, oh, no, it's actually Spectre. Which in this context, if you never read the books or know anything about the books, you're like, what are they on about? 
uh, and that's something <laughs> I probably was as a kid. But from reading about this film, I know Smirsh is from the books, but the Smirshes might be the only time they're mentioned in the film franchise. Yeah, it's not very often. Um, but it, yeah, it's nice to have that there just as a sort of, just to see Bond's realization happening kind of in real time. Um, and it's nice to have that that little bit of uh, um, making Grant being in a position to make Bond kind of squirm a bit and, and enjoying it, enjoying watching. It's just it's, it goes to like the the eventual sort of Bond villain telling telling the whole plan sort of thing. It, this is like the early days of that, I suppose. Very low key. Oh yeah, yeah. He just straight away with no real prompting. He one hundred percent just fully explains the plan which you know i guess it's a classic storytelling device right where you have this guy and you've you've spent this whole film setting up the villain to be so much better than the main guy so how do you make him have a downfall how do you make that kind of make sense well what you do you make him arrogant it's it's what they did with dr no it's what they do with a lot of bond villains you make him super arrogant underestimate james bond and then bond kind of feels like the underdog and then wins overall because he's still a very kind of capable talented person so on paper it all kind of makes sense but with how many bond film kind of does this and how unprompted this all is like he's just incredibly arrogant and if he was just more to the point and more kind of militant and just got the job done yeah this would have been a very short scene and he would have totally won he just his arrogance kind of uh made sure he lost eventually and i suppose sort of following on from that arrogance wise i don't know how you felt about the whole what actually sets up the fight what gets bond out of that position where grant is pointing the gun at him and and bonds on his knees is the whole idea of bond sort of bribing him with some gold coins just to get a cigarette and we we know why he's doing that to to eventually be able to use the attache case and and the gadgets within it and the tear gas and whatnot but to me it was it it kind of it didn't add up to what we'd seen of the character which was this ruthless efficient always one step ahead and then at this last hurdle it's like oh gold coins okay yeah sure i mean i guess it could kind of work because it implies a real selfishness with this character that actually sure he's part of specter but he's just kind of doing this for himself and that if he can get anything extra out of this deal then he's going to do that screw specter if i can get some extra money then i want that money uh he does bond offer say hey we can double the money for you which i think he somewhat considers he just really wants to kill james bond in this moment and you get a really kind of moment i actually really like where it's like the first one won't kill you talking about shooting bullets at him the second one won't kill you the third one won't kill you i actually thought his acting in that scene and bond being in that final state worked really well in terms of being intimidating but again like the in terms of those coins they don't really set him up as being that selfish person they kind of set him up as being a very loyal agent of spectre and as a loyal agent of Spectre, he just wouldn't care about the money in that situation. Yeah. yeah, that that was my that was my takeaway from it. Um, but <laughs> you saying about that line about the bullets that just made me think. I don't know. It's all about the way he says "kiss my foot." It it really stood out to me. But <laughs> like, you can come over here and kiss my foot. <laughs> that was probably more of an insult back then. Like nowadays, it's a bit silly, but maybe that was more of a, a thing. I'm guessing so. I mean, hey, so. sure, he had some very nice shoes on. Um, but, but yeah, so he he eventually does take Bond up on the offer of um, the gold coins, and so 
this is something, again, it's one of those things where I might have missed it, but I'm just assuming. Bond switches the the attack, the briefcases, doesn't he? Um, Or he takes the gold coins out of the one that has the tear gas. Because then when he's like, oh, I've got more, that's when Grant's like, no, 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 I'll do this. So I'm just wondering, because like the, the coins should have been in the one that gassed, but it was in the other one. Yes. I guess it's whose briefcase is that second one. I thought it was Bond's as well. I don't think Bond has two briefcases, though. That's, I mean, it's a very minor point, and but it's just something I was like, well, hang on a minute, why didn't, why didn't that go off? Because it's not the same briefcase he goes for. So I, I took know. it, and I might be wrong here, I took it that it was the whole thing that Q showed him, that if you put the latches one way, then it's safe. If you do it how you normally would do the latches, then it goes off. I took it as that, but I didn't really think about it too much. I just took it as like, okay, well, we know how this goes. Bond is going to do it the correct way that Q showed him, and then he's going to send the briefcase his way, and he's going to do it the wrong way, and that's going to uh, trigger the the talcum powder uh, gas. Yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, that is what it is. I I was just, maybe I've just saw something that wasn't there. I don't know. Um, But yeah, eventually Grant does open the briefcase and then tear gas gives Bond a chance to get up and then we get um we get the fight scene the very intense fight scene i i when i was watching this um i was just putting things like just how it was just very it's a very visceral fight scene there's not much fluff to it it's not like you have a little bit of a gag about this or or something flying over there it's just two men <laughs> like fumbling around in a very tight space um and then one you know the lights smash and it you get this kind of blue overcast um it's just very heavy it's very clumsy it's very sort of like actually you can tell it's it's fighting for your life sort of thing it's not not a showy fight scene um and the fact that there's no music as well just kind of really adds to that yeah, so I kind of put chaotic here, but it's kind of chaotic in all the ways you would kind of want it to be. So rather than this big bombastic fight like the gypsy scene was, this is just two men in a very confined space in the dark because they instantly smash the light. They smash the window, so you get all this wind coming in, so you get the sense of the, the train going faster or, or going fast alongside them and stuff. And it's just so visceral and it's not like a bloody scene it's not like they get really badly injured it just works really well and i think this is a kind of scene that only the bond franchise pulls off as well as it does where you got something like a a john wick will be very slick action that all kind of flows into each other and then you might have another scene like or you have like the raid or something like that where it's very more brutal and kinetic and you know it can be a little bit sloppy but it's still these kind of vicious hits and things like that but this one despite being you know a lot softer than those films or those other examples or or more modern day examples it still works really well it's still really nice to see these two people who um i believe these were the actual actors weren't they right these weren't like stunt people actually seeing them trying to pull off this fight and the fact that they just set this up so well to get to this point and you know set up these two characters set up the scene of them smashing the lights and smashing the window having this small space it just works like it's just a really great fight scene and even though you know how it's probably going to go it's just really exciting to see it all kind of play out in front of you it's it's got to be one of the best james bond fight scene in the whole franchise i would agree 
I think it's probably one of the standout parts of this film for me. Um, just, re- just really well done. As you say, it was actually them doing it. And I don't know. I mean, it's not like you can clearly see their faces when they're fumbling around, but I, it still, it just adds to knowing it's them doing it. And, and it's all very kind of real in what you're seeing is what you're getting with it. Um, and yeah, the, the train, the sound, the wind, um, it's just re- it's like, it's just really, really well done. And it's kind of like when you see that not done well, <clears throat> Spectre, you realize how good a job they did. Yeah, it's it's like I said, I think only Bond could really pull off that type of scene. It's so not slick, but in all the right ways. And I, I really appreciate it about this scene. Yeah. And uh, once again, that that briefcase, probably one of Q's best gadgets. Yeah, he should have just made a load more of those, like upgrade Honestly, the briefcase. Everything. So useful because they're in the midst of, well, he's got, he's got his wire out and strangling bond and uh bond just about gets hold of the dagger on the quick release from the briefcase and stabs him in the arm and switches around the wire and does it on grant instead and um it's like it's just great because you have that that chaotic fumbling all the sound effects of the bashing and the wind and stuff and then it all just sort of quietens down and you just have the sort of uh yeah like the exhale of the fight scene it's back to back to business it's just the double whammy with the foreshadowing as well is it like super clever foreshadowing is it christopher nolan level style like no but it's still satisfying in its own way where like you say it's the grot wire that um, nash i'm calling him nash now (laughs) um uses that you saw at the very start of the film to actually kill the guy who looks like bond but then Bond counters it with something as you've also seen with the briefcase with the knife that Q showed off. So you actually get these this like double payoff in a way where it kind of really feels good to see that kind of play out. And this whole scene has that stuff like with the coins and the briefcase and things like that. Uh, so it kind of all comes to a head in this scene throughout it. And I think that's kind of what somewhat helps separate it from just like a normal fight. It's all this stuff that we've already seen. Here it is, it pays off. Yeah, again, not super complicated filmmaking compared to modern films, but it just works and and, and it works in the end. It just works. Which I think is more than what can be said of the rest of this film. In my head, I kind of see the film just ending here because I hate to say it, but the rest of the film for me goes downhill very quickly very that's interesting i really don't like i mean we're talking 20 minutes maybe not even that 15 minutes left of the film um and i really just dislike pretty much all of it okay that's that's quite interesting because my kind of general thoughts about this part of the film is that a lot of the scenes and a lot of the action pieces kind of work quite well by themselves but what we kind of get after this scene is a lot of like half climaxes um like three or four half climaxes in a row where none of them are the actual kind of ending to the film but kind of feel like they somewhat should be if they put a little bit more effort into it Um, so we've got that scene on the train but the train eventually stops bond gets tanya off tanya at this point is still pretty awful they do put a plot reason in she has been drugged but the fact that they haven't really done anything with the character and she's just all like, oh, don't leave me, James. Don't leave me. Um, you do kind of have to put up with that for the rest of the film. 
Um, so now we have Bond on foot somewhat or in a car uh, driving to still try to get to London, but Spectre is still hot on their tail, so we have a few more chases to, to round up the film. Yeah, so Bond and Tellia, they eventually find what would have been Grant's escape and and uh, take the guy hostage, the Spectre guy hostage, and take his car and um, drive on. Well, I suppose actually before that we have the helicopter scene, right? Yeah, so it goes... Yeah, I think so. It's a, it's a little bit tricky. There's like somewhat of a chase scene, but these aren't like proper chase scenes, I feel like. Or at least they're not kind of as well put together as later chase scenes in the franchise. Not that I think the chase scenes here are bad, but the structure of it, it's another time where I feel like this is probably how the book was. And I've heard that this film is very loyal to the book. And books usually have this where films will very deliberately merge everything together. So you get that one big payoff, both in terms of how big it goes and also how the story goes. And then you have a little bit of an epilogue and then it ends. But this film doesn't do that instead. But yeah, so I think the first one is he's driving in the car and then the little yellow helicopter shows up, which we did see before because number three did take this helicopter to the Spectre Island. But now we have these other people there. And initially they start throwing grenades, which actually was like, wow, is this a real scene? Because those grenades go really close to the car and I don't see how they could have faked it. It looks extremely dangerous what they did with those explosions as the car goes by. Probably. I mean, I'm sure uh, (laughs) health and safety rules at work were very different then, especially for stuntmen. But uh, I wouldn't surprise me. I just I really just do not like this helicopter scene. Um, I think it's just a bit, I mean, yeah, like you say that this scene and the next action scene with the boats to me are just out of place completely. They're just tacked on at the end, maybe because they are following the structure of the book. I don't know, but I think there should have been a creative decision to maybe put them earlier on in the film, um, spread them out a bit. just seems like we're getting too much at the end. And as you say, not fully realized. And I just think with this helicopter scene, it's just, it's just like, Bond's there, helicopter above him, swooping down on him, like dropping these grenades. I guess they'd never heard of guns, these people in in the helicopter. And it, it was just it's just swooping constantly. I don't there's no <laughs> there's no tension there. It's just swooping for a bit and then a few explosions. And then he just takes out the helicopter with just a really silly, silly method. I just didn't like it. Well, I, I, you're kind of missing one aspect of this where they're chasing him with the grenades in the car. So he stops and says, Tiny, you stay here. I'll take care of this. And then runs to the hills. And yeah. then you get those scenes that you're saying where the helicopter swoops down. And then they've put like the camera on the front of the helicopter. And you just get this very kind of close-in scene of the helicopter going above with Sean Connery in his hat. I'm assuming not Sean Connery. Just like kind of running forward, be like, oh! <laughs> like falling over. <laughs> and I, I did really dislike this scene. I, I thought it was fine. But the the thing I thought of was like, is this a Monty Python sketch? <laughs> <laughs> the way it was framed and how silly Sean Connery looked uh, <laughs> made me think of Monty Python. I think it's probably a reference to North by Northwest, I imagine. like That's the vibes I got with the whole sure, yeah. build stuff. But uh, yeah, I don't know. The fact that you're... That, to me, it's like, kind of like quite telling. It's just... It, it was just bad. It was just bad to me. 
Okay, I mean, fair enough. I think they they could have made this work. I think a helicopter chase scene sounds very cool, and some of that grenade stuff I think is good. It's just the fact that he's in like a flower truck, and then decides to get out and kind of shoot it. It feels like maybe this should have been better combined with the boat chase scene and kind of make that one solid one instead rather than kind of having these two separate ones because we have this helicopter chase scene and then he cuts to the boat and then it cuts to a scene at Spectre with Blofeld and then it cuts back to the boat scene where if you kind of sync that up as one more complete chase it probably would have been a little bit more satisfying especially as kind of a okay he's killed the main guy and now we get this nice big chase scene and then that that kind of wraps up the film quite nicely yeah I think that would have worked a lot better. I think, um, well, I mean, even the, even the boat chase scene, again, it's sort of something that doesn't really seem fully fleshed out. And, and also, I forgot to mention at the beginning that um, the character that we see at the very beginning of the film um, in the training camp after the fake Bond's been killed, that's the same actor. I thought it might have even been the same character at first, but then I was realised, oh, actually, no, because... This is meant to be a Spectre character. It's General Gogov, I think that's his name, um, who appears quite a lot in the Roger Moore Bond films. Oh. I don't know if you caught that. I think it's the same actor. But anyway. I, I wouldn't recognise him, to be honest. I don't know the Roger Moore films too well, but I'll keep an eye out when we get there. Yeah, just another case of like reusing actors, which is quite common for Bond films. Um, but he's the one that's sort of leading the boat chase. And again, just quite silly. Just, Just... Bond being chased by lots of other boats. Um, yeah, I should have mentioned like they move from the car to a boat. Yeah, there's actually a scene in between. So I mentioned the the Spectre scene, but they get onto the boat. He has a Bond finds a captain's hat from somewhere with a little anchor on it, which is it's cute, but I don't know where he gets it from. All boats uh, have those. Oh yeah, standard issue, right? You can't <laughs> drive it without one. <laughs> Quite right. I think Hugh might have put it in his... Uh, <laughs> if you ever find a boat bond, you'll need one of these. Uh, but then we get uh, cut back to Blofeld and Spectre and them talking. And then this sets up a, a future scene where basically we have number three and number five getting all sweaty, as people like to do in this film. We mm-hmm. didn't even mention sweaty Sean Connery back in the bedroom scene, which I'm very upset about. We, we might need to do a, a separate podcast about Sweaty Sean. Um, that's, that's a bonus episode in the future. Yeah, exactly. The many sweaty sh- scenes of Sean Connery. <laughs> we can rank them instead. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm down. Um, so we, we get quite a short scene. I, I think it's quite effective. I, I do quite like it where someone shows up with a shoe. There's then a little knife that comes out of the shoe. And then it's like, number three, you've let me down. And I do not tolerate failure. But then he stabs number five, the chess player, instead, and then tells number three, you know what to do, get to it, take care of Bond. The old switcheroo. Although I never really understood that because was it number five's fault? She was the one who picked Grant. Why did he not kill her? I think I always kind of took it as mostly an intimidation act. And to be fair, it was number five's plan, which is what they argued. So yes, his plan ultimately failed and she was just executing that. But I took it in terms of he still wants James Bond to be killed. Who does he kind of trust to intimidate more to go get that done? 
And I think he kind of decides that number three, the Russian woman, is a better candidate for that. So if he killed number three, then said to number five, go kill Bond, I think he had more faith that by killing number five, she would freak the hell out and say, I need to kill this guy because my life literally depends on it. Uh, and probably has more, Blofeld probably has more faith in her to get it done. Or he, she either gets it done or gets killed anyway by Bond. So it's somewhat of a win-win for him. That's a very that's a very fair point, and she is a lot scarier than the other guy. Yeah. So you know, maybe that's not it. They might have purely just done it to make Blofeld seem super evil. That was probably the number one reason. But even then, I think there is some weird twisted logic there where it somewhat makes sense. I mean, some someone's going to die either way, and it maybe gets in terms of the story, the fact that this woman has been set up as somewhat of the main villain. If she just got killed by Blofeld off screen, and that was that, maybe that would kind of not be great. Tom, your logic makes too much sense. I'm a bit worried. Are you perhaps the head of some organization? Should I be? Should I be scared? I'm head of Smush, by the way. I, I oh, took Smush. that over. Yeah. <laughs> They're back. <laughs> Are you Smush? Better than ever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So back to the the actual chase. So we get that scene, which is to set up something later on, which but arguably doesn't really need to be set up. But oh well, it's nice to see a bit more of the cat, I guess. Um, <laughs> Even that cat. So, so, so then we go on to the boat chase scene, which I I quite liked. It's a little bit of a clumsy scene. You got the guy who you talked about on the megaphone who just loves shouting and mm-hmm. like he's just shouting the whole time, like give him a warning shot, and then they shoot at him. He's like, "You're firing too close. What are you doing?" Ah! <laughs> it's just like <laughs> shouting throughout this whole scene. Yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense. I don't want to blow up the lector, but it's just um, again, it goes into fire everywhere lots of fire uh people literally i think the, there's one shot where it's just the boat touches another boat and it just explodes it's kind of like the car yes. and Do- dr no it's just like why why are things just exploding yeah so so the logic or the explanation in the film of the explosions is that they have a load of uh, petrol or oil on their boat or bond does and then the bad guy shoot at them too close and it hits them all, so Bond knocks them out, which fills the the river or canal with with oil. He then drives ahead. They drive into the oil. He shoots it with a flare. It sets it alight. What stood out about this scene is that this actually was quite horrific, because in later Bond films, it's treated as like here's some cool explosions and people jumping into the river, being like, "Oh no, goodness, we're on fire!" Ha ha. But this one's like treated like a war scene. Where you've got everyone shouting, there's chaos, they're bumping into each other. The guy's still bloody shouting on the megaphone. <laughs> but there's like dramatic music and then eventually that guy gets set on fire and then just falls into the river. It's like surprisingly real. There's no like fun spin on this. It's just people burning to death in a river. Yeah, I think on that level... I can live with these, even the helicopter. I think there are some shots in the helicopter scene that are quite impressive um, camera-wise. But I just think it just comes at such a weird place in the film. That's the thing that I really get hung up on, is that we're we're now literally, we're like five minutes from the end of the film and and, and we've got this big chase scene and it's just, just doesn't feel like an ending to me. No, I, I can understand that. The the pacing of this film is still quite quick. 
but it does kind of somewhat lose its way a little bit here where they they should have really tied all that stuff together to make it feel more like a film and a proper kind of film ending and i think they could have done that but due to them sticking i'm gonna say it's the book i i'm I'm gonna have to say i haven't read the book but it just feels like the way that would play out where you've got all these little kind of things where okay bond is still in croatia and he still needs to get somewhere and we still have all these characters in the background that needs to be resolved so right let's try and come up with a exciting way to have this all resolve and it feels quite segmented and it's just kind of again you get about three or four half climaxes and then the film stops after that point yeah that's exactly it that's exactly it but they do make it out they make it out alive and uh i think they end up in venice is it venice yeah i think it's venice it's a quite nice uh because the film starts in venice so it's actually quite nice at the end in venice i thought that was quite nice uh bookmarking there yeah of course it does because you get the end shot yeah on the gondola yeah and um cuts to to uh bond and, and tanya in the in a hotel in venice and um everything's great they got they got away from specter uh they got the lector and uh bond's on the phone and <gasps> who comes in none other than cleb dressed up as a maid ready to clean the room <laughs> i just i think it's just, all these things together the helicopter the boat and this scene really just to me and makes the film end on a little bit of a lesser note than it could have because to me this scene is just it's a bit of a a waste of that character of Cleb I think she is she's not really she's not seen hugely in the film but as far as characters go she's very she's like very visually memorable she has a great kind of character um and as you say that scene with Blofeld just before where she knows she's got to do this. I think for that then to lead to this, where she's taken out really quite quickly and a little bit lazily, I think just didn't really do the character justice. There's a couple of things I do like about this scene, but the execution is still very much off on it. I like that she's coming in as a maid with the shoe and there's like pure desperation there, that this Mm. woman has gone from being the head of this organisation with this big plan being reduced to due to james bond and also blofeld due to this like manic desperate plan that makes no sense and i kind of like that in a way to see this villain fall from grace and just do this like insane thing that just wouldn't make any sense at all so i kind of like that even if it's a a little bit clumsy here and i also like the idea that tanya is the one who eventually says oh no you're bad i'm going to shoot you but again it comes down to execution where the the character development of Tanya is completely fumbled throughout the film. So what should be quite a satisfying moment of saying Tanya has broken free of Spectre and the, her influence and is going with James, that should work quite well. And all the elements were there because those elements haven't been developed throughout the film. It kind of makes that moment a little bit weaker, but I feel like in terms of what they were trying to set up, this should have been quite a big moment for Tanya saying, Oh, I know you're evil. And I think it thematically makes sense for her to, to shoot number three and get that final moment. I think that's quite good. Uh, it's just, unfortunately everything that kind of leads up to this moment kind of gets fumbled a little bit. So it doesn't kind of pay off in the way that they were perhaps hoping. I totally agree. I think that's right. I think good, good ideas, but, but bad, um, bad, uh, <laughs> what's the word I'm trying to think of? Uh, where's the word I'm trying to think of? It's not execution. It's not what I execution. Said. That's the word. Execution. Yes, um, because I actually think 
Kleb when she is shot. Great death. Great, great sort of like collapsing down the wall. I really like that. As you say, good desperation in the character and and nice, nice movie death. I like that. Kind of hammy, but you've got to have that. Um, I just think, like you say, the whole thing with, with Tanya and, and uh, her where her mind is at just isn't really fully realised. And that brings us to the end of the film. So the, the focal theme of From Russia With Love kicks in, which is very nice to, to hear. And then it ends on Bond in a boat with Tanya looking at the footage of them banging earlier from the hotel. Yep. She's like, what's all this then? And she's like, he's like, I'll let you take a look. And then he drops it in the river. Um, and then they kiss because apparently they're now an item or something. I don't know. We've already talked about it a bit. It doesn't really make any sense, but it's a James Bond film. So it has to end on Bond making out with the, well, in a boat as well. Another parallel Another to Dr. Boat. No. They, yeah. It ends in a boat as well. And then uh, then that's it. And the and the credits roll. With a very, very creepy, yeah, so as, as you say, he throws the the reel into the, into the river, but that's this very strange wave to it as well. And it's really, I just don't know, it was kind of very strange movement. And what I didn't really like, another thing I didn't really like about the ending, more bad rear projection, which just just kind of, I don't know. It would be really nice if they were actually there in Venice, but alas, not quite. Yeah. And I was kind of thinking as the, the From Russia With Love theme plays, because of course it says russia in the title but it's obviously a bit more of a love song i guess and i was wondering if it was written to match venice and this type of environment instead it it felt like they played it in this moment because the song was kind of written for this moment of you know they're in love and stuff and the other time we've seen it is when bond was with a woman and, and hanging out with that more relaxed sunny and things like that it feels like maybe that theme was specifically written for these scenes in mind because it seems to match quite well I think you're right. I think you're right. I'd not really thought of that, but yeah, it does have that the end of the film. Like I say, it's a it's a pro, it's a proper crooner song. It's like something you Frank Sinatra would sing or yeah, whatever. And, and it has it's definitely not like later Bond films where it is bombastic. Um, did you also notice that in the credits it says the end and then. Not quite the end. Not quite the end. <laughs> I like that. Not quite the end. And then you do get the James Bond will return. Yeah, if you didn't know, if that, if you saw that film in the cinema and you didn't know, that would actually be a really cool moment. Obviously, knowing where this goes as a franchise and us seeing this all kind of before and knowing Bond, it's like, oh, that's cool. That's the first time they say James Bond will return in. But it is a little bit crude. But again, if you didn't know... And it's saying, yes, the next film we're going to do is Goldfinger and say, not quite the end. You'd be like, oh, interesting. Because surely mm. nothing like that has been done before. It's like the equivalent of Marvel films nowadays with the stinger at the end. Like this is like almost the first example of that. It really is. Yeah. Take that, Marvel. Yeah. I think they're doing okay. <laughs> I think they're doing okay, Marvel. I don't know. I, I think they might be a little bit shaky. I think they might be uh, needing some help. So that was from Russia with Love. I get the sense from you, Joe, that you're actually not on high as the film as you once were. And actually, this might have brought the film down for you a little bit as we went through. I think potentially, yes. Obviously, we are two films in. It is still going to be beating Dr. No. 
But when we get on to more films in the series and ranking them, I don't know now because, as I say, I think pretty much everything, give or take a few scenes, everything up until the train and the train fight is great to me. I think it really just falls down in that last 20 minutes, um, pacing-wise and, and all that all that sort of stuff. It doesn't stop it from being high up there because I think what it does do well, it does really well. But yeah, I'm quite surprised. I think it might have lowered a little bit in my mind from before. Yeah, that's quite interesting because I had a somewhat different experience where, you know, I mostly agree with what you're saying and the stuff with Tanya. I think is the biggest, the, the stuff with Tanya for me is the biggest problem of the film, although it's still somewhat smaller. But I still really kind of enjoy the scenes. And yes, you're right with the pacing at the end of it and these different scenes, but I still kind of enjoyed them individually. Um mm. And I think I'm a bit higher on the film than I once was. I don't know if I see this going into the top five. But again, when I originally started out, I had Goldfinger as my number one Sean Connery film. And I do feel like that perhaps is still going to be good. But I I just had such a great time with this one. So many great moments, so many cool kind of scenes, such like Sean Connery just kind of smashes it. I love the whole uh nash thing and that other asian guy i think they do those parallels so well and it's so smart and the the for russia with love theme the music is so good i just this just felt like such a great adventure where yes some of that stuff is kind of a little bit off but it does give it a somewhat unique feel and the budget really does help with this film so i came out very positive uh and i think probably will rank it higher than you when all is said and done oh interesting i do think it is Something to be said about the fact that this came out one year after Doctor Well, Mario. yeah, one year. In, and they did go to Turkey as well and everything. Yeah. I mean, we have to now wait six years at least for a Bond film. And it's just like they pumped them out, which you would perhaps think would actually be not good. But where they are, where it is like it was still a very new franchise and they were finding their feet, it, it meant that they were kind of improving quickly rather than cutting corners and everything. Yeah, and I want to say the next two are, came out uh, subsequent years as well. I think it was You Only Live... Uh, yeah, You Only Live Twice that had the, the two-year gap. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So, yeah, so for me, uh, you've already said From Russia With Love, number one, Doctor No, number two. Uh, I will also echo that. I will put From Russia With Love at number one and Doctor No at number two. I do see them somewhat separating... Uh, but I could see from Russia with Love for me being a, a top 10 um, because, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. It's just such a classic Bond film. Maybe it's not one of my favourites, but I just had a blast rewatching it again. Oh, yeah. I still definitely enjoyed watching it again. I don't think there's going to be any Bond film. Well, we'll see. But I don't think there's going to be any Bond film that I come out and think, ugh, that was a waste of two hours. But um, this certainly wasn't that. No, and that's the thing. Yeah, it was uh, actually only five minutes longer than Doctor No. They were actually very similar lengths. Really? Huh. Yeah, Doctor No is 109 minutes. This was 114 minutes. Wow, okay. It felt like it did a lot more with that time. Yeah, absolutely. Like the locations and stuff like that. Yeah, as you say, it did a lot more with that time. It's, it's about the same pacing as Doctor No, but they do jump around uh, quite a bit. Yeah. So that's it uh, for this episode. We have ranked them. Not a very exciting ranking, unfortunately, <laughs> but we are getting there. It will get it will get more interesting. It will, I promise. 
I think by the time we get to the Sean Connery ones, our list should at least look somewhat different, I would say. And then Roger Moore is just the Wild West. God knows what's going to happen then. <laughs> I'm excited. But this has been episode two of the Bond Revisited podcast. Join us next time when the Bond Revisited podcast will return with the next film in the franchise and a, a pretty big one uh, with Goldfinger. <laughs>